All right. Here we go. Three days, 10 votes. The 10th round is wrapping up as we speak and still no speaker. Is there a path forward for House Republicans without Kevin McCarthy? Who in the party could come close to hitting the magic number of 218 votes? Let's go to Orlando, Florida, where Congressman Alan Grayson is standing by. Alan Grayson represented Florida's 8th and 9th congressional districts. Howie Klein calls him the smartest man he's ever met. I think Ted Lieu, I think he'd say the same thing about Congressman Ted Lieu. I call Alan Grayson a national treasure who, during the height of the illegal invasion of Iraq, was one of the few voices of morality and sanity, which in America are not often related to one another. It's good to hear your voice, sir. Thank you. You too. All right. It looks like Kevin McCarthy is going to fail on the 10th vote. They're tallying it up as we speak. I have been told that Kevin McCarthy is not smart, that he literally cannot count votes. Is that true? And if it is true, where does Kevin McCarthy get his power from? Who is financing Kevin McCarthy? He's not that smart. I don't think he's an idiot, but he's not. I'm sorry. Um, he he's not an idiot, but he's not very intelligent as to where he gets power from. It's on K Street in Washington, where the lobbyists work. Uh, and he has relentless networks. I'm sorry. To generate tens of millions of dollars for the party. OK, you're, you're breaking up just a little. So you're saying that he gets his money from. K Street, where he's able to generate tens of millions of dollars that he doles out. Right. That, that is his stick. OK. And do we know we, we know that Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer are getting their money from Wall Street. Do we know specifically which industries are bankrolling Kevin McCarthy? Many, uh, but he started with the traditional ones like oil and gas and banking. I see. And that's what the ones who have leaned GOP for a long time. OK. And that's where the power comes from there. He's not obviously he has no power of persuasion. It, it just comes from his ability to dole out money. Is there any other skill that he has that makes him the putative leader of the House Republicans? Not as far as I can see. Uh, and he was so relentless about it that when he was elected to Congress, there's a two-month gap between the election and when you're sworn in. And McCarthy spent that time getting to know uh, f fundraising victims, <laughs> donors, <laughs> um, in Washington, D.C., among the lobbyists of the PACs. He should not have brought this vote to the floor if he didn't have the vote? Isn't there a Hastert rule? Don't bring any votes to the floor if you can't win it. Uh, what does he have? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. So Trump has been supposedly working the phones on behalf of Kevin McCarthy. So what kind of sway does Trump have over House Republicans? And how many 
I noticed that Matt Gates, I think in the today seventh or eighth round, nominated Trump for speaker. That that is a possibility. There may be a Deux Machina where where Trump will come down from the sky and save the party from itself. Uh, so, how much sway does Trump have over the House Republicans? How many votes could he get if he? ends up running for speaker and define de ux machina. Uh, God from the machine. Uh, it's Latin. <laughs> you're not going to win that game with me. <laughs> <laughs> what is the definition of de ux machina? You got it right. You were just breaking up. I could do something about that. Um, Geez, I hope it's not impairing the listener's pleasure. Um, to to get back to the earlier part, mm. we, we, we have, but they're they're so dim in my memory at this point. It's been that was a pretty long question. Okay, so let's uh, but start from the beginning. Question, yeah, the answer is none. Okay, the answer is none. Now the question is, what's the question? It's like playing Jeopardy. Uh-huh. The the question is. How much sway does Trump have? And we've already run that experiment. We've seen the results. The answer is that he has none. He apparently called virtually all of the holdouts, and none of them changed their votes. Uh, so all of these Trumpettes and right-wing nuts uh, appear to um, be unwilling to, to listen to the master of the nuttery himself. Is he secretly holding out hope that he will be asked to unify the Republicans and be brought in as speaker? I don't think we'd be able to avoid the same problem. I mean, there's got to be at least four members of the caucus, at least five members of the caucus who would refuse to vote for him for speaker. Um, and uh, it's just a, an intrinsically hard thing. You referred to the Hastert rule before. The Hastert rule simply says that you need a majority of the caucus in order to move ahead with something. In other words, you can't rely upon Democratic votes. You have to be able to have a majority of the Republican caucus. Majority. But uh, under the present circumstances, unless somebody changes the rules, uh, you need more than a majority of the caucus. You need a majority of the House the majority of the people voting in the House. And that's just much more difficult. I, I have to, I'm sure none of the Democrats vote for Trump. That's obvious. Right. And I have to think that there would probably be at least five Republicans who would refuse to do that. Uh, you know, they would say, well, we can't vote for somebody who's not a member or so, something like that. Well, you know, whatever it's going to give. Republicans, despite the fact that they cleaned House in the last election, a lot of these Republicans are... A lot of these Republicans are what? You broke they up. They fear uh, or hate Trump. A lot of these Republicans fear or hate Trump. Or hate Trump. Right. right. Who is making the rules in the House? Who has the gavel? Nancy Pelosi, I assume, surrendered the gavel. You have written that McCarthy can change the rules in the House uh, and, and it could be just a thumbs up, thumbs down plurality vote without having to hit 218, does he does he have that power to change the rules right now? The House has the power. McCarthy doesn't have the power, but the House itself has the power. 
the Constitution says the House shall set its rules. Uh, given the fact that elections have occurred, whether or not the members are sworn in, the House tradition is that the one thing they can do is adopt rules. So by a majority vote right now, the House could adopt a rule that changes the requirement that the Speaker get 218 votes or thereabouts. And it, it actually happened once before in the 1800s. They found that they just couldn't get to a majority for any candidates. So they went with a plurality instead by changing the rules. In order to change the rules, do you need a majority or can you get by on a plurality? You need a majority. So it's kind of like trying to change the filibuster. You can't you can't change the rules without these 20 far right conservatives being on board or at least enough. You got to get to 218 to change the rules. Correct. That, that's true. Um, th that is true that the, the conservative, the, the conservative nutty block, the holdouts, uh, the, the 20 of them who refuse to vote for Mac McCarthy because they want to save, uh, save America, they say, um, the, the, uh, the zealots, let's call them that, the zealots. Um, they, they would have to uh, agree to, some of them would have to agree to a change of the rules in order for the rules to be changed. But it's not the same thing. Uh, clearly, there's some of them who hate McCarthy personally and are not going to vote for McCarthy under any circumstances. But they may not hate the rules personally. They may be willing to you know, change the rules because maybe, well, whatever their motivation might be, it's hard to say. But uh, what you would need is you need to peel off uh, an, enough of them to be able to change the rules and change the dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, if you, and it would change the dynamic. I mean, if, if plurality was enough, then all 20 of these would basically have to choose. They'd have no choice. They'd have to choose between McCarthy and Jeffries. And I think that the, the great majority of them would end up choosing McCarthy under those circumstances. So if we're plurality vote instead of majority vote, the dynamic changes tremendously. And is there the possibility of some kind of power sharing? You you suggested some kind of power sharing be, uh, between McCarthy and Jordan. Is that conceivable? Well, you have to be specific about it. Um, the, the between McCarthy and Jordan, you're talking about Jim Jordan. Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, in Israel, the, they've they've had a prime minister and an alternative prime minister now. Uh, as an experiment for the past, uh, until recently, the past four years. Um, and people regard that as an unsuccessful experiment. But th the Constitution says there has to be a speaker. It doesn't say there has to be one speaker. So, you know, in theory, they could be co-speakers. There's, there's nothing in the Constitution that would prohibit that. It's just a matter of what the rules would say. When do you think McCarthy is going to realize he can't get to 218? How many more how many more rounds can he go? Well, the, the, it's hard to tell because this is no longer a political experiment. It's a psychological experiment. And you reach that point at certain points uh, in Congress. Um, we reached that point a few times regarding government shutdowns. And there was no way to tell how long that a shutdown would last or exactly how it would end. Uh, you'd literally have to bring in psychologists in order to have any clue 
about that. It just it reached the point where it's just not political anymore. The 20 far um, and that's right. That's kind of where we are. You have 20 far right, let's call them perhaps insurrectionists who want to stop the functioning of our government. I mean, that is a crime to stop the functioning of our government. They, they are stopping a, the peaceful transfer of power, actually, between Nancy Pelosi and whomever, uh, Kevin McCarthy, supposedly. That's what the insurrectionists, some of the insurrectionists are being charged with preventing the, 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 the government from functioning. You have 18 out of that 20 are election deniers. These are people who have no problem with shutting down our government. So what, what, what's going to get those 20 far-right conservatives to get on board uh, getting the, the legislative branch up and running again? Isn't this what they want? They don't want the legislative branch functioning, do they? Uh, for the most part, no. I mean, as, as you point out, there's a very extreme correlation between uh, the people who supported the, the January 6th riot slash insurrection and the people who are preventing McCarthy uh, from becoming a speaker or anybody else from becoming a speaker. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a fair observation in general. Um, I also think that it, they've reached the point that that's a very dangerous point in, in politics in any country at any time which is when people start to believe their own BS. Uh, if you listen to them and you listen to what they're saying, what they're saying is that they need to do this in order to save America. Uh, they're not too clear about what the threat is, uh, except business as usual, which McCarthy represents. And that's, that's a fair observation too. But they, they literally are having the time of their lives, people like Chip Roy, for instance, Boebert, they're having a time of their lives and glorifying themselves and trying to make themselves uh, into angels or heroes on account of what they're doing here. And that's very dangerous in politics in general. Um, that's how dictatorships uh, start and how they're sustained. Uh, it's, by the way, the same thing, for instance, with Putin. At some point, Putin started to believe his own BS. And now look where we are. We're talking about what, four, all it takes is four far-right Republicans to gum up the works? Is that the number? Uh, five, I think. Uh, I think there's 222 Republicans now, and 218 would be a majority. Uh, so if four peeled off, you'd still have a majority. But if five peeled off, you would not. Okay, so Bobert, Gates... Gosar, Andy Biggs, uh, uh, the guy, the guy Scott Perry in Pennsylvania. I mean, these are borderline, uh, let's say, January 6th sympathizers. I know that Chip Roy voted to certify the election for Biden. He's the reasonable one in all this. Though the what the. the, the when, when I think of Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, uh, uh, Scott Perry, uh, Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, I think they'd be very happy to hold on to this power and watch Washington grind to an absolute standstill. That's why they were sent to Washington to, to destroy it. So 
did our founding fathers, you're a constitutional scholar, you've written a book about impeachment. Did our founding fathers give us a workaround for something like this? Uh, no, the founding fathers didn't even have to deal with parties. And the, 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 the whole notion of parties isn't represented anywhere in the Constitution. It was anathema uh, to they, Washington, they were, right? Right, right. So, you know, they couldn't really conceive of deadlock. They just assumed that um, people would, in the end, think things through, talk things through, uh, and reach a sensible conclusion. And, of course, that's not the world we live in anymore. But the deadlock that you're seeing is something that would have been completely foreign to them uh, and just bizarre. They they would have thought that this is just crazy. And And by the way, the ones that you mentioned are only the ones that are well known. Uh, what you have behind them is another, you know, 12 to 15 people who are MAGA nuts and just haven't found the right way to get the media's attention yet. Um, but the, the, the signs are that psychologically they're exactly the same. They're, they're zealots. They want to bring down the government. They want to, uh, what's the term that was used back in the days? They want, they want to suffocate it in its crib or drown it in its crib, or something like oh, that. Oh, no, Grover Norquist said he wants to make government so small he can drown it in a bathtub. Yes, right. Thank you. Thanks for and recalling that to, for me. I say to Grover, yeah, but you need government to make sure the water goes from the reservoir into your bathtub to drown it. You, you still need a well, government. Well, right. <laughs> So, right. But uh, plus, he really wants to make it small enough to fit inside a woman's vagina. <laughs> um, but that's. Oh, that's fantastic. So it's brinkmanship. We're we're looking at the possibility of this lasting how long and when do we put the popcorn down and start getting scared? When does this start getting scary? We do have a budget for 2023, correct? Part of the year, yeah, not the whole year. Um, the, the answer is that it's an experiment unfolding right in front of our eyes. Um, there's no obvious way forward. There's a number of possible ways forward. I noted today that the Democrats could try to capitalize on this to make equal representation on the committees and subcommittees, equal staffing budgets. Uh, you could avoid a, a motion to discharge, which is how the, the majority can force legislation to a vote in the House, a motion to discharge. Uh, that's what the Republicans would try to do in those circumstances. You could have equal earmarks. I mean, there, there's a definable agenda uh, for those on our side who are willing to think that way and, you know, make good calculations about ways to end this that are constructive for us. Uh, but there's no sign of that actually being discussed or even thought about at where these decisions are actually made. I mean, if Pelosi were still in charge, I think that that would be the, the you know, the, that would be the thought of the day. What do we do in order to make this um, advantageous for us and the people who are relying upon us? Interesting. To do something good in their lives. Uh, but the current leadership doesn't seem to think that way. So they just want to enjoy the, the scenery. Theoretically, if there is no government, no House of Representatives, no legislative branch, Biden skates for two years without oversight. Hunter Biden, no Hunter Biden in investigation. 
and he can then issue executive orders that will be challenged in the Supreme Court, but not by a functioning House Oversight Committee, right? So who who challenges, if there's no House of Representatives, I guess it's McConnell uh, bringing uh, Biden's executive orders before the Supreme Court? No, it would be mostly state governors doing it, but uh, I think that that's a really artificial sense of of how the future actually works. Uh, A British prime minister was once asked, what's the greatest risk to your success as prime minister? And he said, events, dear boy, events. Uh, What if we didn't have a functioning House of Representatives and um, a worldwide pandemic happened? What if we didn't have a functioning House of Representatives and there was an enormous crash in the capital markets or the real estate markets. And what if we didn't have a functioning House of Representatives and unemployment hit 15%? You want me to answer that? You know, the, I can yeah, answer that. Yes, I, I, get to, I get to ask a question in this interview. It's fantastic. I never get to ask <laughs> questions. Go ahead. The answer is if there's, a, ahead, world, if there's a worldwide pandemic, nothing would change. We still don't have a new COVID bill. But they still haven't been able to pass a COVID bill. If if the uh, economy crashes, it would be up to Jerome Powell over at the Federal Reserve, as it always is. We, we go to war without consulting Congress. It, it seems to me it's just spending bills and oversight that we'd be missing. What would we be missing? Uh, well... Um, I, I'm not as optimistic as you are. I mean, when there, when there is a hurricane, generally you see Congress doing something about it. When there's some kind of other natural disaster, you see Congress doing something about it. You know, in, in terms of response to COVID, it reached $4 trillion. And then you get into the issue of what happens if there is a war. We never. How, how are you going to conduct a war when, when one, you know, half of one branch of one sixth of government is not functioning properly? When or we, when is, when's the last time Congress uh, declared war? I know we do authorizations, but with the War Powers Act, we we can go. Biden can go right in, and can't he issue a, a trillion dollar coin without consulting Congress? Well, um, some people, but, but Congress was issuing $1 trillion budgets, appropriating $1 trillion budgets during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and they had to do that. I mean, the Constitution, for instance, prohibits appropriations bills for defense that are more than two years long. So eventually the military runs out of money. Um, and as does everybody else. Now, there are rules about that. If, For instance, if they don't pass a budget, the FAA still operates because you don't want planes falling out of the sky, for instance. But but those are pretty narrow exceptions. Uh, so anyway, I, the answer is I don't know. I mean, when the first time there was a, a government shutdown, uh, people freaked out. And they said, well, you know, we're not going to have the air to breathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't work out to be that bad. Right. We had air, but, but, uh, you know, it's an experiment that you really don't want to run just to see what happens. The same thing with defaulting on the debt, which is uh, we're we're just a few months away from unless Congress acts, you, 
you don't really want to see if there's going to be a world crash on account of that. It's not, not an experiment that anybody really has to, to run and they're curious to find out the result. It's, you just want to try to avoid the problem. Who is enjoying this? Who, who, not in terms of political parties, but would you say that there are some rich people who love the theatrics of all this and are not scared at all? Or rich, are rich people scared about this? Are the powerful scared? No, I mean, like, it's, 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 it's uh, no, 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 of course they're not scared. I mean, you know, look, look what's happened. <laughs> to Elon Musk, he used to have 200 billion. Now he has only 100 billion. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, when when you're that high up in space, it's a, right. it's a very very long fall before you hit the ground. Um, I, I don't think that any of them are worried about it. I think the ones who are enjoying themselves are the nutty twenty, um, and you can see it. I mean, they voted last night. Some of them voted last night against adjourning. So they've come out, you know, strongly against the concept of sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they didn't, they didn't want to stop the party. Right. I mean, think about that. What does that mean when you won't even agree on a journey? Right, right. So uh, you have mentioned before you go, you rattled off some names who could possibly get the speakership. Uh, so you said, uh, I don't know who this guy is, Hal Rogers. Who is Hal Rogers? Congressman Hal Rogers. He's a congressman, congressman from Kentucky, the longest-serving Republican, uh, and people like him. He's he's very courtly. He's very dignified. He's very Southern, uh, and he's he never gets into fights with people. And he hands out. He's on the Appropriations Committee. He hands out money to people's districts all around the country. Uh, so he's popular, and yet nobody's entered his name. Yet. Nope. Okay. Nope, because he's a McCarthy guy, and that would be disloyal. Okay. Pete Sessions. Who is Pete Sessions? Congressman from Texas got knocked out uh, for uh, one or two uh, terms and came back, uh, losing the seniority that accumulated, but he's still cumulatively been around for quite a while. Uh, very popular with the Republican members. Uh, always looking to do favors for people. He was on the rules committee and would, you know, consciously seek out Republican members and say, hey, let's work on some legislation together and I'll put it through the rules committee. So as I'm, so he's as I'm hearing you, the, there is the possibility that somebody like Hakeem Jeffries, who the entire Democratic caucus is behind, he has all the power, right? Because he could say, hey, you know what? We're going to obviously I, Hakeem Jeffries, can't become speaker, but I can make Pete Sessions speaker, right? People would vote for him in, in lockstep if Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat, said, let's make Pete Sessions speaker. So there's a lot of power that Hakeem Jeffries has right now. Uh, only if he makes some kind of deal that's good for the Democrats. I mean, your power evaporates very quickly if people think you're doing dumb things with it. But is if that... he were to do a deal like I just described, right. then, yeah, that would, that would accumulate power for him tremendously because it would be a good deal that would help the party I as see. a whole and the people who depend upon the Democratic Party. But if he were to say, you know, I like the cut of his jib, so I'm going to 
take my votes and give them to Pete Sessions, that wouldn't work at all. I mean, Pete Sessions is a really, really right-wing Republican. He just happens to be a popular one. I see. So I mean, he's got personal skills the way that, you know, the, the way that you kind of need to have in order to get to 218 uh, votes, like Paul Ryan did. You know, people genuinely like Paul Ryan, the, for better or for worse. Right. Um, and that, that was enough to, you know, put, put him to parlay into a speakership. This but is, you, I don't think you can make a deal without getting, you know, major concessions from the Republicans. And the caucus just wouldn't go along with that. Right. Tom Cole, you, you say, is a Republican who could possibly get to 218? Yes. Again, uh, somebody who people just on the other side, they just like him. They like Tom. Um, and he cultivates that. I mean, as I mentioned on Twitter yesterday, what's, what you're thinking, what you're going to see next is that there's going to be efforts to punish the holdouts who are, you know, uh, exercising their, their uh, power to say no to everything. And, and that punishment in part takes the form of using party resources to defeat them in their next primary, which is only 18 months away. And what Tom Cole did yesterday is he said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do anything to punish anybody. Uh, we're not going to take away their committee assignments. Uh, we're just we're just not going to do that. And that's that's, a th you know, that's showing people love rather than the stick. And, you know, that's what makes people like Tom um, popular. They you know, they most people like to be mothered rather than fathered. But didn't McCarthy? Uh, sow the seeds of his own destruction by not taking a stick to these 20 election deniers, even though he himself is an election denier. Don't you have to take a stick to these people? I, I don't, I don't think that that's how their psychology works. I don't, I don't, I mean, there's probably out of 20 of them, there's probably a couple of them who you could, you know, defeat that way. Uh, you know, you can get them to back down, but I, I don't see a lot of that in that group of people. Like, these are people who are zealots and, you know, they, they never ask themselves, gee, how is it that there's 435 members of Congress and only 20 of them see it the way I do? Mm -hmm. You know, they, they just don't ask themselves those questions. They just assume that they're right and the other 95 percent is wrong. Um, and, that, you know, that when you're dealing with somebody like that, it, threatening doesn't get you too far. Right. It really, it really doesn't. Then, I, you know, there was the same thing uh, when we we were uh, in power, when the Democrats were in power. I don't remember a single occasion, not one single occasion, of Pelosi ever doing that. Uh, the, the, she, she, a, it's not in her heart, and b, it just doesn't work. Right. You know, the threatening people, it just isn't really going to win on it unless you. You know, unless you're dealing with spineless people. Right. I, I have one final question before we get to Mario Diaz-Balart. Who is he? And you say he could get possibly 218 votes? Yeah. First of all, um, he's on the Appropriations Committee, too. And he's very nice to people. And again, goes out of his way to, and particularly the other side, of course, he goes out of his way to, you know, find ways to, to use his authority to, uh, you know, to the, the palpable advantage of other people. Like, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, he, he, I could picture Mario saying to somebody uh, who lives in Kansas, uh, represents uh, the Kansas, some Kansas district, gee, you know, I, I really think it's time that your, your main city got new sewers. What do you think? Mm -hmm. uh, should we put that through the Appropriations Committee? 
Uh, so, you know, Mario, again, is like looking for ways to help people. Uh, perfectly legitimate uh, way for people to, to function in Congress. There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody, you know, is supposed to be representing their districts and, and supposed to be finding good things for them. Wow. Um, and and uh, so Mario is good at that. And also Mario is uh, not uh, an Anglo. Uh, he's, uh, he's Cuban. And uh, more and more, uh, the, the Republican Party is challenged as being the party of racism. Right. So having a visible Hispanic leader like that, as, as they did with Rubio here in Florida, when Rubio was Speaker of the Florida House, um, is perceived to be a very good thing for them. Right. Do the Republicans pay a political price for this bedlam, or do they get rewarded for it? I think that the public is so ex, ex, extremely, uh, extremely cauterized by the, the Trump experience. Not, you know, not just separated, but, but at a point now where you, half of the population thinks the other half is trying to kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 the anti-vaxxers uh, are, have been a public health threat to a large part of the population. And they, in turn, feel that the fact that they're told to get vaxxed is a public health threat to them. Right. So you, you literally have people who think the other side's trying to kill me. And that's the result of the lunacy that the, the, the national nervous breakdown that Trump has tried to induce. So do they have to pay a price for this? Um, not so far. The more polarized that they make uh, the country, uh, the more power they seem to have. Yeah, yeah. We've been talking with Congressman Alan Grayson. He represented Florida's 8th and 9th congressional districts. And what I've taken away from this conversation, and it's been really valuable, is that Donald Trump is not the power broker in Washington, D.C. He once fancied himself to be. Uh, That uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to have to step aside and that what the impression that I'm getting from you is the real power broker right now is Hakeem Jeffries, because his his caucus, not one single defector. If Hakeem Jeffries says jump, the entire Democratic caucus says how high. So it seems to me that he can make up the 20 votes that that uh, McCarthy can't get. So he it's going to be Hakeem Jeffries who picks the next Republican speaker. Is that is that correct? I don't think so. Um, there's there's no record so far of this particular leadership team being comfortable or knowledgeable in exercising power. So, you know, the classic example is Mitch McConnell. Whether Mitch McConnell is the majority or minority, Mitch McConnell is calling all the shots. Uh, and that's a, that's a political gift. That, that There are very few people in life who have that ability. Uh, Nancy Pelosi ran the House and, you know, for more than a decade, never lost a vote. Never lost a single vote. You can look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, you know, that, that also is, is an enormous gift. And, and frankly, she did it because people loved her. Uh, I, I once sat next to a congressman. She came over and said, can I count on you for this? And he said, yes. And I said, I think you just ended your political career. He said, maybe, but I love her. You love her. 
I think she's the greatest political leader that I have ever met. Okay. Uh, so, so there's no sign at this point that the current team has any track record. Uh, now, they're brand new, so of course they have no track record. But there's no sign they have any track record in knowing how to exercise that power like McConnell does, whether he's got the votes or not. And like Pelosi did whenever she was in charge. There's no sign of that. So what you're saying is just a hypothetical. We don't know if that's that's going to work out at all or not. This isn't ending anytime soon, is it? I don't know. I, I mean, look, people can wake up tomorrow and be just they could just feel different. It's one of the great puzzles of uh, of of life and psychology. You never know what's going to happen when you wake up tomorrow. Assuming you do wake up tomorrow. Okay. Um, and I, so I don't, I don't know if it's going to be long or it's going to be short. I can see different ways that it's not going to end. And, I, you know, for instance, you're not going to have those 20 people uh, suddenly falling in love with Kevin McCarthy. I doubt you're going to have them intimidated into submission. I don't think those are viable uh, ways out here. But as to which uh, viable alternative and when it's going to happen, I don't know. Interesting. I do see that there are opportunities for our side that uh, definitely should be exploited to the hilt uh, because there are people who are counting upon us to make their lives better. And we have to use the power that we have in order to make that happen. I mean, it's kind of interesting to me that nobody's talking about negotiating with the Republicans over a portion right now. Mm-hmm. I think that might be a constructive time to do it. If McCarthy is willing to hand out absolutely anything to anybody, now would be a good time to try to hash that out. Great. And, and so on. Great. This is the conversation, the conversation with Alan Grayson, like the conversation with Howie Klein, you can't hear on any other show. I'm just so privileged and honored to have Congressman Alan Grayson. Uh, what is your Twitter handle? It's at Alan Grayson, right? That's right. Thank you, Congressman Alan Grayson. Thank you. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right and buckle in real tight. The Hershenfelds are with us. Dr. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a real psychiatrist, a Freudian psychoanalyst, the real deal, the, the talking cure. And Dr. Ethan Hershenfeld is no, not no, 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 no. a doctor, but he is the author of this masterpiece that everybody needs to go by. It's called Today Is Now, and it's written by Dr. Samuel Benjamin, his alter ego. It has the Feldman guarantee. You buy Today Is Now. If it doesn't make you laugh hysterically, I will reimburse you. Welcome, Hershenfelds. Thank you. I, Thank I, just you, want, I, I want to warn you. David, that I invited, and I don't know if he's here tonight, but I invited a conservative person to watch the show tonight. A very smart conservative person, by the way. Hmm. So watch watch what you say. It's interesting that you say that because I spent some time with a conservative last week. Uh Uh-huh. Not so sure uh, there's actually such a thing as a Republican. I think it's basically a person in desperate need of psychiatric help. I do. I I mean, I know you think I'm joking. 
but but when you talk, I, I'm talking to this person about what they believe, and I'm thinking this is not an ideology. This is a manifestation of trauma. How is it pronounced? I always forget, Ethan. Uh, the actual pronunciation is trauma. <laughs> trauma. But these, these American psychoanalysts say trauma. <laughs> and the rest of you say trauma. How we pro- What is trauma? How do we process it? And isn't that the difference between people... The, the ones who, who process their trauma and the ones who don't? What well, is let's give you an example of trauma. You go, doctor, you go. Here's an example of trauma. Tra- trauma. <laughs> A guy takes his 17-year-old son to this horrific movie about the Warsaw Ghetto. That's trauma. But... For me or my son? <laughs> or both. Probably both. Yeah. Um, but as you so wisely said, different people process it in different ways. So some people will be overwhelmed with anxiety, fear, you name it. And other people will be emotionally distant from it. So that's what I say. How, how would you define trauma? So a lot of things that happen in life are horrible. Just horrible. You go through your day and horrible things, terrible things happen, horrible things happen. Those are all just regular. That's just regular stuff that's happening. That All that terrible stuff and horrible stuff, things are going wrong, people are yelling at you, you say the wrong thing, you feel regret, you're embarrassed, (laughs) you're angry, you're late, you're nervous that you're late, other people are angry at you that you're late, then you're guilty for yourself for being guilty (laughs) that you're late. Why? Just just be late. Don't worry about it. But none of that is trauma. Trauma is like while you're on your way to that thing and you're late and you're upset that you're late and people are calling you and saying, where the hell are you? You're ruining everything. Right at that moment, A delivery guy on a bike runs into you and you smash your head against a against a mailbox. That's trauma. That's trauma. That's the difference. Yeah. The regular the other stuff is just the usual horrible stuff that happens. Or another example, let's say for like the third or fourth week in a row, you haven't done your homework. And your caretaker, it could be a parent, a step parent, it could be a who knows who it is. They say enough. And then they decide the only way you're going to do your homework is if they chain you to a radiator in the basement. <laughs> and that's trauma. If you're chained to see, it's it's not the usual horrible. I hope I've made myself clear. OK. All right. Very wise, very wise. Very wise. Your colleague is is very smart, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. Bringing my kid to see horrible movies about war and the Holocaust. Because he was 17. That was the problem. I was taking him at young, younger to okay. see movies about the Holocaust. Okay. And, and that is... I was forcing 
trauma on him? I wanted him to be trauma. What, what was I thinking? You weren't thinking. Well, I was thinking. I was thinking he needs to see these things. And he does, maybe when he's 23. Hmm. I don't, I'm not a fan of those, all those movies. I saw them all. I read the books. I took the courses. They told you never, never again, never forget. I just, I couldn't wait to forget. Now I've forgotten. It's great. <laughs> I just, I recommend never again and never forget. Okay, fine. But never again, but you don't also have to never forget. You can, you can, <laughs> you can just do the never again without the never forgetting. That's what they, what's overlooked. Right. Right. Yeah. We had that at my, at the Hebrew day school from, you know, th the third grade, you're looking at right. these, it's terrible. It's not, it's not helpful. It doesn't, it's not good for your appetite. If you have that class right before lunch, it's, it's terrible. It's not relaxing. If it's before nap, if it's <laughs> nursery or before recess, I don't recommend it. Well, I grew up surrounded by it. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I just felt obligated for my kids to know about it at, at a very early age. So in all seriousness, Dr. Hershenfeld, you're saying that your son, you sent your son to a yeshiva and he, and he, you knew he was. And he was traumatized. You were. So it's okay for somebody else to try. It's okay for a professional to traumatize their kids. <laughs> That's the key. That's it. That, that so you're that that would be a a new job, a professional yeah. traumatizer who who can traumatize your children properly and then discuss. It. No, well, I don't think that was traumatizing. It was traumatizing the time that they took us to Kiryas Yoel up in Rockland County. They gave us like it was like a day like this is like the field trip day. It was like a day at the shtetl. So we went. It was it was horrible. Um, I would have rather gone to see, seen that movie with you, David. Right. But right. So one of the stops. I don't remember anything of that day except at one point they take us to the to see the shochet, the uh, the kosher butcher. They they took all of us fifth graders on a field trip to watch a guy slit a chicken's throat. Yeah, that was trauma. And what is the thinking behind that? Like, how do you benefit from saying where well, you're the, the, the benefit is the soup. <laughs> and the other benefit is you are now a vegan. Right. So it was, yeah, that's the, the benefit. No, the benefit was, I don't know. It's weird. It, the, it, it should have been like a threat. Like if, if you, uh, if you don't play your cards, you could end up living in this place. Like where you know, you walk muddy, muddy paths between the the slaughterer and the whatever. But uh, I guess it was just it was like uh, it was like fiddle or fiddler on the roof without the music, <laughs> <laughs> which is really not a show anyone wants to see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to if you want to see it. There is a movie that you can find on YouTube called yeah. Tevya. The Milkman. I've seen it. It's black oh. and white, and it was filmed in Long Island. Exactly. It, but yes. it looks like it was filmed in Poland. Right. Right. It's on, yes. And, and it's in Yiddish. Right.
And the acting is pretty good. Have you seen that, Ethan? It's on yeah. YouTube. Yeah, I, I was subject. I was traumatized. Uh, I was shown that movie. I saw a few minutes of it. Yeah, I think filming it in Long Island actually makes it more Jewish. Than <laughs> <filming> it. <laughs> I, it's actually that trip to Curiosity Well made me a vegetarian. It was seeing Tevye the Milkman, the movie that made me a full <laughs> vegan. <laughs> I can never enjoy milk again. I want to talk about the royal family because apparently you do. I do, and you don't have to. We, but okay. I, I think that it has to be dissolved, not for the sake of the Commonwealth and the people who have been exploited by everything the royal family represents. Although that's part of it, I think for the sake of the royal family that we have to get rid of the royal family. And I think Prince Charles or King Charles secretly has said to Prince Harry and Meghan, destroy this whole thing. This is this is no way for anybody to live. Harry and Meghan, Harry has a new book out called Spare. It's a bowling manual. What is yes, it? it's yes. It's about. Yeah. Yeah. I always loved the spare in bowling, I have to tell you, because it's like salvation. It's just like life. You want it to be that way. Things aren't going well, and you can just make it perfect. Right. Nice. Okay. The, but you don't get as many points as a strike still. You don't. You don't. But you it's still for a spare. Yeah, you get that next frame, but not the next two frames. But, but a know. strike is luck. You really can't throw yeah. a strike precisely enough to guarantee exactly how the good enough you can there are people who throw 12 of them in a row and get a perfect game of 300 yeah, yeah that's a rare that has been done but the, but a spare where you you really have to the precision of hitting the pin just right so it knocks another pin down i think that deserves it's as you said it's redemption it is now, but but Harry's book is not about that. It's about changing tires. It's about changing tires. Yes, exactly. He is the. There's an heir and a spare. The idea being that ah. God forbid, Prince William at an early age disappears. Uh, right. Harry gets it. That's what happened with King George Edward, uh, King Edward, who was Queen Victoria's son had a son, I think, named Eddie, and he died. So King George, who was next in line, he was the spare. Not only did he end up becoming king, but he married King uh, Prince Eddie's fiancée. Hmm. The, uh, I forgot her name. She was... Uh, you seem obsessed with these people. I am. Yeah. Do you think you, you're one of them? Is that I, my mother told me that? Ah, okay, now yeah. I get it. Okay, I think I would make a great prince. I think I, I think I would look good in those costumes, and and unveiling things, and do you doing the walkabout? Do you, do you like telling people what to do? I would enjoy, I'd like to say we are not amused and it would just be me, not we. And I'd like people to bow in front of me. And I'd like to uh, not have a family I'm ashamed of. Although I think 
You know, it turns out even the children of the king and queen of England are ashamed of their parents. I couldn't do the job because mostly because it's a very fixed schedule and someone else makes your schedule. I can't stand it when other people make plans for me. That's the worst. Like, here's what we're going to do. I don't like I don't like that. I like to be able to do what I'm going to do when I want to do it, where I want to do it. And here's the really important thing for as long as I want to do it. (laughs) It's very important to be able to leave right when I want to leave. I can't, if if something's not going well, if I don't like the movie, if I'm not enjoying the dinner, I'm just, I'm gone. I couldn't have a whole coterie and assistants and men at arms and ladies in waiting and carriages. It would be a nightmare. All the logistics. I think they earn every penny. I think royalty earns every penny to have to get up every day. Yeah on those costumes and then talk to complete strangers and pretend to care. Yeah. It's like a Disney. It's like a gig at Disney. Like yes. playing goof, it's like playing goofy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But there, the, the odds of getting out of that uh, with your yeah. saying, it's like getting, it's like getting out of being the Pope. Only one guy, every, every millennium gets to get out of it. Hey, um, it, we're down to one pope now. Thank God. <laughs> we're down to one pope. Uh, Are you saying that's one pope too many? Is that what you're saying? I think what the doctor was saying is that there was so much coverage of the death of Pope Benedict, nobody even knew that Barbara Walters died. Right. I, I I'm joking. The the coverage of Barbara Walters was phenomenal. Now I don't you know Barbara Wal. I I understand she shattered some glass ceilings, but she was not a crusading journalist. There wasn't one story that she broke as a as a journalist. Was there? She she was a, she was a celebrity, right? Yeah, but there wasn't. She wasn't. She wasn't Edward R. Murrow. She, she wasn't David Halberstam. I, I I will tell you this. I met her once. Um, our our cousin was was, was her periodontist. I hope I'm not. <laughs> I hope I'm not talking at it at a school here. But I was once. Hang on. Now periodontist would be teeth. Uh, yeah, the gums. 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 Oh, Barbara Walters. He knew her gums. Her, her gums. She treated her gums. Now, beautiful gingiva on that woman. <laughs> gums, <laughs> rosy, uh, plump, very <laughs> a very healthy set of gums. No, I was arriving. She was leaving. She was paying her bill, and I, I got to meet Barbara Walters. And I think I was a in my early twenties. I think I even got maybe she signed the back of 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 our cousin's business card for me. Wow. Come to think of it. Yeah. Very lovely. Gums. 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 Can gums be treated? They have to be treated if there's something wrong with them. Otherwise, your teeth fall out. What do you do with gums? You get like you get new gums. You can get new gums. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. They clean them. They clean them. They cut them so they grow back healthier. You don't. Don't ask. You don't want to know. <laughs> you don't want to know. They even use uh they even use uh pig this is they use pig gums uh in, in transplant. That's not a that's that's for real. Yeah. yeah. Now what do you do 
if they are kosher. It's not a, it's not, you're not eating them. You're eating with them. You're not <laughs> eating them. <laughs> so that's been, uh, that's, that's settled law. What about, wasn't insulin at one time? Yes. Came from a, a pig? Yes, yeah. And so what do you do? From a pig to a pig, because <laughs> that's why you need insulin. Too much sweets. <laughs> no. No, not true. That's type 2. That's, that's type 2 diabetes. Type 1 is yeah. probably an autoimmune disease to the pancreas. Yes. It has nothing to do with your... Um, yeah, my apologies. My apologies. What would you prefer, type one or type two, Ethan? What what what, <laughs> what would you pick? I would go. I know that one is more severe than the other. Yeah. Not to make light of it, because we've done a couple of benefits here. I know, I know. That's why I felt bad suddenly doing but it. Not to make light of it. Yeah. Uh, but I would prefer type one to type two, because um, you know. It's not my hands are clean. I didn't cause this. Right. It's a better. Right. It's it's like I I had no I was born with it. But type two is you have to reexamine your your lifestyle. Is there a type three? Yeah. It's a little bit of one and a little bit of two. It's the best of one and the best of two. Half and half. (laughs) David, from this, we derive that you're a very guilty man. I am guilty. But the question then has to be asked. What is the punishment? No, that's later. What are you actually guilty about in your imagination? A couple of uh, murders uh, over a 10-year period. But uh, I don't I think now is guilt instilled or is it innate? I, I, I think I have a cultural guilt that was bestowed upon me by my my loved ones. I think I was made to feel guilty at an early age. But I think a lot of what guilt is, is the fantasy that you have control over the things that happened. Because the only way you can be responsible for those things is if you actually have control. So. Right. A lot of that whole idea of guilt and I'm guilty is just building up your own sense of importance on some level. Wow. But in fact, a lot of things That's can really happen. interesting. Yeah, a lot of things happen. They're beyond your control. But to say, oh, I'm guilty of it, that means, oh, okay, I, it, you know, I'm the, I'm the chief operator here. That is really interesting because a couple of times I'll, I've caught myself saying, wait a second, you're not God. You didn't cause this. Right. So it's it's uh, false delusions of grandeur. Yeah, that can be part of it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. But if you oh. say to your, if you have to say to yourself, "You're not God," that implies that you think you are God. Because otherwise, why would you have to say it? Well, in in terms of feeling guilty for something, for somebody's feeling guilty that somebody is in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a way, I'm causing it because I'm not calling this person or I'm neglecting this person. And then I thought, then well, I, you're I, taking them to horrible movies that they're too young for. 
I don't feel guilty about that. Oh, good. Okay. I, I have no guilt about how I raise my kids. Wow. I don't look back. I, I don't. I I don't think I would have done anything different. I don't. I, I really don't feel guilty. I, I I think they should feel guilty about how they treat me. I, I think. They're, they're, do they call? Do they call enough, David? Do they call enough, or do they call too much? much too much. Too much. Too much. <laughs> I, I schedule calls with them every six months. It's uh, this is yeah. Um, do they? Call? I I think. Uh, I never thought getting respect from my children uh, was important. Now I do. As I get older, I'm thinking, you know, maybe too late, too late. You're not going to give it to me. <laughs> it has to be instilled early. I don't. I don't. I. I disagree. I have to say oh. that. It'd be funny. <laughs> I disagree, and butt munch. You know, you With know. all due respect, all due respect. Um, life is long. It's getting longer. It's extremely long, and there's always there's always time to do something new or to do something that earns respect or admiration, even a little thing, even like a little a like a a well place joke or a a gift a gift of cash there's all sorts of things can be deployed no no what i mean is i think of course there's if you i'm not a parent but if i assume parents have that fixation on oh what did i do what did i do wrong like in those formative years that obsession with the formative years but they're all formative years all years are formative years that's, that's what very we were saying that's what I'm here to say. It's true you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but when I when I hear that, I always think, just leave the old dog alone. Let him nap. <laughs> Why are you trying to teach this old dog new tricks? It's torture at that point. <laughs> he wants to nap. He wants his meal. He wants to take a walk. That's it. But with people, you can teach them new tricks all the time. Right. So I'd like to point out <laughs> that during this discussion, we have explained the whole Kevin McCarthy phenomenon that's going on right now. Go on. By the way, that was a very funny email that you sent. Uh, you. Sent down to Washington. It made me laugh. It was it was uh, it was very funny. What is going on in his psyche? What is he thinking? No, but what, I'm curious, What? how did we explain that? I want to hear this. I'm not going to tell you. Oh, oh okay. All right. <laughs> oh, I see. I get it. Okay. Try to figure it out. I like that when I tuned into like roll call number nine, there was a new guy that was being voted on. I'd never even heard his name. They're just bringing in uh, like deep into the bullpen. They were just anything like Dick Hurts. They're going to nominate just to humiliate or yeah. Kevin McCarthy. Is he... You've said to me that sometimes I punish myself. Is this an act of punishment? His sitting there being rejected, I think, 11 times. First of all, is it a humiliation, doctor? Is it self-debasement. I heard somebody, a serious person say, and a serious person said, this is serious. One of his jobs that he volunteered to do was to separate the, out the yucky, yellow 
some kind of candies that Trump liked from the he, he only disliked the yellow ones because he thought they were maybe that reminded him of urine, I guess. So, so McCarthy agreed to separate candy for yeah, Trump? One of his jobs. He would separate the inedible yellows wow. from the rest of... Like Starburst. Maybe it was Starburst. Yeah, I, I think that. he's right. Starburst yellow is not good. Don't they have a centrifuge to do something like that? So the debasement, <clears throat> there's a part of the job of being speaker is to debase yourself for the good the better good. In his mind, that was not Nancy Pelosi's idea of it. Right? Right. But here's the I real know. secret. Do you remember Hale Fredonia? Uh, mon- a monkey bit, duck soup. Yes. This whole thing was scripted by the Marx Brothers. That's how to understand it. Um. What, what is what is he not thinking? What is why I, mean, I watch him. I have no sympathy for Kevin McCarthy. Um, I think he thinks there's nobody in the Republican Party who can come even close to making a, a presentable effort as speaker you can't put jim jordan steve scalise i don't think so i think he just wants the job he's always wanted the job he's going to do anything oh wait my phone is ringing yes kevin okay i'm on my way send the limousine and i'll be down just in a couple hours hold the fort okay Listen, I got to go. Kevin <laughs> wants me. Goodbye. Well, wow. Kevin, wait. What was wow. Kevin? Wait. Isn't that a. Yeah, a, it was, like uh, it was a sitcom. Yeah. Ethan, uh, before you Thanks. go. Thanks, man. Uh, great job, as always. You really are hysterically funny. Well, thank you. You have to be loved of the three. Loved, feared, or respected. I have to choose one? Yeah. Uh, love. I'll tell you what I want. Love, feared, or respected? Feared, respected. I don't know. I don't think feared. I, I, I can I want to be feared? Yeah, that, I, I would just want to be laughed at. That would be if I. Can we have a fourth choice? No. Oh, you, you have to be in a, in a relationship with a, a loved one. Yeah, loved, feared, or respected. I think fear goes a lot longer. I think love dies, respect yeah. dies. Fear, fear lives past your own existence, the, the, right? That's true. I feel like of of the three, the one that's going to be the cleanest and involve the fewest bodily fluids is respected. <laughs> so the one that involves the, the least cleaning up of those three. When you walk into a room. Yeah. Like what I came to your home for Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah. I want to be feared. I don't want anybody I, I, me. I, that's what the dogs are for, though. <laughs> I want people to fear me. I think it's cleaner. I just think I it's know. I don't I'm not sure. But I'm gonna think about that one. I like it. Yeah. Let me quickly uh plug a gig and then we'll plug today is now by Dr. Today Smith. is now. That's all that's happening. Gig wise, uh I'll keep Stand you posted. Up. 
I'll keep you posted. Nothing happening. I'm, I'm enjoying a New Year's respite. I'm recharging, reevaluating, regurgitating, uh, regretting. I'm doing all the re's. No, no. I'm just, uh, I'll be back in town in a couple of days and I'll let you know what's happening. And how's the sewage situation in Cape Cod? No sewage. Uh, I hear the, I hear, there's raw sewage now. There's a raw sewage problem there. Well, I think it's it's overstated. No, no, no. I think uh, up up here towards the tip, I think we're okay. But uh, I had my new sewage system put in, the new septic system. I already went through that. But I do have a compost pile in the back that is visited regularly by very large coyotes. It's pretty cool. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Ethan. Great job. You, David. God bless. Ethan Hershenfeld. Everybody go pick up Today Is Now, written is now. by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right buckle in real tight. Emil Guillermo joins us, one of my older friends. I've known him since the early 80s. He is a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and he hosts the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. We're going to talk about Kevin McCarthy. There's an animal who I think is being mistreated and the chancellor of Purdue, who has offended the Asian American community and is asking for forgiveness. Barbara Walters passed away. If you were a tree, which tree would you be, Emil? You're talking about me? Oh, yeah. all right. I think, yeah, I wasn't going to say this. Earlier. I think, I think palm trees are, mm-hmm. are, are, they're decorative, but they have a, they don't break. They, they bend, they, they don't break in the wind. They're decorative. You know, like I said, they're pretty. A lot of people think they're useless and they want to uproot them and say, you know, let, let's put something else in there. Right. And I I'd, have be, I'd be a shoe tree. I'd like to be a shoe tree. A, sh- a what? I was shoe tree. Well, shoe I can tree. see. I say, well, you know, you take that was Barbara. Okay, so defend Barbara Walters. I have nothing against Barbara Walters, but there was wall to wall coverage of her passing. Yeah. Is she a real journalist? Were there any breaking stories or was she did she defile journalism by making it more about celebrity and less about digging up secrets? She made money for for the journalism business. She, you know, the thing about Barbara Walters is that she had a, a hard nose uh, instinct for the news. But she, she, you know, it's like velvet, velvet glove, iron fist. It looked like frou frou, but she was serious. And you talk to anyone out there who was competing against her, you know, for the big gets, for the big interviews. I mean, she sort of made the old boy network uh, get off their butts and start moving it and try to get try to get interviews and try to get people to say things. You know, when you're an interviewer, you make news by getting to people getting people to say things they wouldn't say ordinarily. And that's what she did with be it celebrities or be it newsmakers, uh, be it uh, world leaders, Fidel Castro. I mean, I, I think she gets short shrift uh, until she died. And then people realize, wow, you know, you, you can, you can uh, denigrate what she did and say, Oh, that's infotainment. But there's something about getting real information and being able to package it 
so that people can consume it. And, you know, it's not all hard, but it was news. And she did wonders for the ABC News division, even though she had her detractors. What what she got hit on or, you know, what she was criticized most for was based on the 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 gender issues that uh, that you know the the you know the anti-female bias that that was there you know Harry Reasoner's behavior early on so uh, you, you, I think I think she deserves all the all the praise she's getting now she was a trailblazer she really did pave the way and I've got to admit that she you know there are a lot of women. Who say, "Oh, I'm here because of Barbara. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at uh, my anchor desk because of Barbara." But I, I think also for for uh, men of color like myself, I only got a chance because they were willing to take a look first at Barbara Walters, and then uh, they were able to see my Asian maleness and say, "Oh, well, let's get a meal on there," because you know, for a long time, you know, when we first met and I was on uh, television. Uh, we met at that San Francisco television station. You know, there were, weren't many Filipino males on television. There was a guy named Leon Lontok who played the chauffeur in Burke's Law, an old, you know, Gene Barry uh, detective show. David, I don't know. Are you there? No, I'm listening. I, oh, okay. All right. I, I just didn't see your face. And so I, I, I just think that, you know, f- for a while, Leon Lontok was – you know him and Ponzi Ponce and you know, I mean the the parts for for Asian Americans and Filipinos in in showbiz and all right now here I'm taking a leap I'm saying news is kind of show busy right television news I mean it wasn't considered hard journalism back in the early days of television and so you know the New York Times and the Washington Post they did their thing they did hard news. But Barbara Walters, she was able to get on in 1951 on the Today Show because, you know, no one knew what television was going to be. And so I, you got to hand it to her for being the kind of aggressive, ambitious person, knowing that she was maybe treading too much on celebrities sometimes, but she came back, she knew what she was. So I hear you and thank you for that. What is news? How do you define news? Well, it's, news, uh, news is what the rich and powerful don't want you to know. Right. News is what people don't want you to hear. And the but more the pow- what the powerful don't. Well, want. yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's relative. Like if it's whether it's a supervisor in San Francisco or it's a vice president and, you know, sitting or a president in Washington. Right. Powerful relative power. So a celebrity and not to take anything away from Barbara Walters, but a celebrity promoting a new book or selling a new movie. Yeah. It's not news. Unless unless, you're not not uncovering something they don't want you to know. Yes. Unless, and this is why it's important to ask what kind of tree would you be? Because then you'll hear something that they won't want you to know that their PR people are, you know, like going crazy because you're in, they're engaging in this conversation. Look, I'm not comparing uh, celebrity interviews with Walter, Watergate and and with real hard news. But I think to Barbara Walters credit, she understood that you don't get people to the to the TV set uh, to watch anything unless you make it 
number one, easily understood and somewhat entertaining. And, okay. and I, mean, I, I, I think not to, take, not to take anything away from Barbara Walters. OK. Yeah. There was a time when the argument was. Play fair. All the new television news organizations should play fair by not cheating, by providing entertainment. In other words, only only present the news and don't offer an alternative to the news and call it news. Well, you know, David, there was a time when when at least the three major networks said we're going to this is what news is going to be. And we're going to play fair and not pretend news is something else. Now, nobody knows what news is. Yeah, anything goes now. I mean, look, right. we, we there was a have... time when the parameters were very clear. News yeah. is what the rich and powerful, what the government is telling you mm. and keeping from you. Right. And remember, there was a there was a time when if you played music underneath uh, a piece of video that you use in the news. I mean, you couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. You couldn't uh, uh, recreate a scene. I mean, there. It, you weren't it, allowed. You weren't allowed to do any of that. You weren't allowed to conduct an interview using one camera where the camera would be on your guest and you would ask the questions off camera. And then when that subject got up and left, you weren't allowed to record the questions that you asked without the, the subject being in the same room. Right. Well, you know, in some in some local market Hard to believe, but there, the, that that's those were the journalistic standards of the 50s and the 60s. The standards have come down. I mean, it's it, well, there are know, no standards. Well, look, 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 Walter Cronkite was not a TV news guy when he got into TV. He was a print print guy. A lot of the early guys uh, were print guys first. And that was the transition of TV news. And so Barbara Walters got in at the beginning when no one knew what TV news was going to be. You know, they had a, they had some cameras and rolls of film. And and she now wasn't, she wasn't a uh, she didn't start as a print journalist. I think she was like a public. No, she didn't start. She didn't start. You're right. She didn't. I, and I, I was just meaning the, the, the big guys, you know, Murrow, uh, Cronkite, those guys. But she was allowed to come in in 51 because she was a today was it girl. 51 or 61. I thought it was, well, maybe it was 61. I, I thought it was, it was I, I thought a, a eulogy that said 51. The, the early days of the Today Show. Uh, right. Anyway, Barbara Walters, I, I had to, because look, mind you, I, I've had my, you know, differences of opinion about Barbara Walters and what she meant. But I realize now that she, she was, she was an innovator in terms of getting information, real information, not just, you know, throw away, not important, but information that people can use and okay. the most eyeballs out there, which that's a value right now. You think, you, know? you think her death was covered more than Pope Benedict's? I do. Well, uh, you look at the New York Times on Sunday, like I did on my, on my edition, Pope Benedict was the top of the fold and Barbara's, Barbara Walters was bottom of the fold. So that, that, that kind of okay. says it, you know, but, but Benedict, uh, I know shame. 
for shame, right? I mean, look, as a Catholic, I did go to church on, on Sunday, the day, you know, the, the day after he died, because I, I guess it's a little altar boy guilt, but. Well, he should have some guilt about the altar boys as well. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the reason why he dies in shame. You look at all the people around the world, you look at the money that has caught it. It's cost the Catholic church billions of dollars. Now in the coverage of his death. Yeah. I did not see too much about how he was personally assigned child molestation problems. It was his job to take care of all the child molestation problems. He was the, the capo do tutti capo mm. of shuffling bad priests to different parishes. I, that was I his job. I don't know if, if he, well, he was the Pope, and so he should no, no, Before have. he became Pope, that was his assignment. Oh, yeah, that's right, when he was a, a cardinal, I believe. Well, you know, the, the rap on him is that he did not come down hard. Once he was Pope, he did not come down hard on the Cardinals to say, come on, play baseball, let's get these priests. No, you know, he was playing the shell game. And you want to know why priests were moving around from parish to parish? It's because they were just keeping one foot ahead of the law. So that's why. And then you look at parishes like Boston, parishes like Sacramento, Stockton, L.A. Isn't that why he had to step down as pope? I don't know if that's why. I think I, that's it's not, why. It's, it's not stated. He resigned because he felt the official reason was, uh, this is a job for a younger man because the boys are getting younger, I guess. Uh, uh, but uh, but that but was, as I understand it, yeah, he had to step down because he was in charge of covering up the the pedophilia. Well, I don't know if he was in charge of covering up, but he was in he was in charge of going after them, and he, you know, he sort of feigned. Uh, enforcement. He did not go as aggressively as he should have. Well, I think he covered it up. I think that was what he did. Well, I, I don't, I don't have that uh, fact. Uh, I, I know that he was certainly not as aggressive and as forceful as he should have been. And the official reason why he left was because this was a job for a younger man. And, and, and so he stepped down the atmospheric, the atmospheric, you live in California. How is the atmospheric river? Nonstop rain? Intermittent where I am in, in the valley. But, you know, San Francisco where we used to live, oh, man, uh, it's it's coming down. There's people in little dinghies, you know, floating. I mean, it's 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 kind of refreshing in a way because there has been the water. no rain. Yeah, we need the water. Yeah, the, the drought is so bad, uh, and yet, um, you know, like where I am in the in the in in the center part of the state, it's we get slight respites. A lot of wind too. A, a lot of wind, and the snowpack is is high. A lot of snow in the uh, Sierras. So hopefully, this will get us back on track a little bit. Uh, I I just know that you know I've been staying indoors. I uh, made the dogs walk themselves. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you wish that uh, it would space itself out throughout the year, but this is what we got. Okay. Speaking of voting for the Pope, 
when are we going to see white smoke coming out of the Capitol? Kevin McCarthy, 10, 11, 12 ballots. At what point do you say I can't be Pope? Here's the thing. Kevin McCarthy, uh, this he just look, Trump spoiled everything in Washington. Right. Trump, Trump, you don't. This is Trumpism, right? This is like I'm standing. I'm sticking to my guns. I'm not going to be pushed off. Uh, I'm 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 going to go at it. Uh, I'm going to you know you're not going to get my tax returns. All right. Ultimately, we did, but you know he drag he's going to drag it up because he feels like this is his destiny to to be to be speaker, not to be twelve time loser. Or I guess he's eleven time loser as we talk, but could be twelve, could be even 13. even Susan Lucci is going. Give it a break already. <laughs> I I just think that Kevin McCarthy is is there's a lot of reasons to hate Kevin McCarthy, and one of the things that I really disliked about this whole Groundhog Day uh, uh, politics in the, in the House is is how they've used racial politics to try to lure some votes. All right. So, so some people are trying to lure, um, they, they were trying to get the first black speaker, right? Uh, this guy from Florida, uh, Byron Donald. Yeah. Byron Donald. right. They're trying to say, Hey, we're going to Hakeem Jeffries is, he can't win every ballot. We got to have a, a, here's a African American who's Republican and he barely gets, 20, 20 votes, 21, if you count the votes for himself, you know, and then, but on the seventh ballot, I thought was revealing because McCarthy said, well, two can, two can play this game. He got out this guy, John James, a Republican from Michigan. And James is an African-American Republican, young guy, good looking guy. Uh, he gives this impassioned speech about, Hey, this guy, Kevin McCarthy's a winner. And in fact, the last time, you know, and, John James, his grandparents were slaves. You know, he says, I, I met Kevin McCarthy in the Senate or in the, in the House 2019 or, you know, during one of the State of the Union addresses. And he said, Kevin McCarthy, I was standing next to, I said, he had a, a portrait of Frederick Douglass and the eyes of Frederick Douglass were upon us. And I trust Kevin, he was making Kevin McCarthy into Martin Luther King, for goodness sakes. You know, that that was like, uh, God, that was a low point. Well, Kevin McCarthy has a dream. Yeah. Oh, yes, he has a dream. Has I, a dream. I, I want to be speaker. At, <laughs> what point, at what point is he humiliated? Oh, he's beyond humiliation. He's beyond. Look, he's a he's a Trump Republican. I mean, beyond humiliation. How can you be humiliated when? After January 6th, you come out and say, hey, we've had it with this Trump guy. You got your mask on. You're speaking before the House. And then the next day you're down, you're heading to Mar-a-Lago to, to, to lick his boots. Right. This guy has no shame. He's going to, he'll go on and on. The, oh, you're, I'm losing you. I'm losing oh, you. So there, yeah. Huh? Yeah. The there. microphone has been cut. No, it hasn't, has it? Have we lost you? The tech problem back. How about, how about now? You get me? Oh, it's me. Oh, it's you, it's you. <laughs> David, here, here, here's the other thing. Uh, you know, the record that's most important is the last time it went this many uh, rounds, 10 rounds, was 1923. And what kind of House of Representatives did we have in 1923? What kind of government? We probably had one of the most racist, 
governments, most xenophobic governments we've ever had in this country. Because 1923, that Congress passed the Immigration Act of 1924. Right. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, the Immigration uh, Act of what? 1924. Look it up. The Immigration Act of 1924. It excluded all Asians. All Asians. None could come in to this country, except, except now this is, you know, a point for the Filipinos. My friend here uh, on my shoulder here, Filipino gong. Uh, the Filipinos were colonized by Americans and they were allowed to come to America. They're the only ones from Asia, them and also uh, some Japanese because there was a, a gentleman's agreement apparently, but even that was later curtailed. So it, all immigration from Asia was stopped in 1924. It was a, they, they took the, the exclusion acts of the 1890s and they brought them forward and this was really a period, 19, 1923, the last Congress where it took 10, 10 rounds to get to a speaker. Kevin McCarthy has broken that record because he, he's going to need 13, 14, who, who knows how many rounds because it's probably going to go till next week. So, yes, the most xenophobic racist Congress. Well, let's talk about Purdue, the chancellor of Purdue. Offended the Asian American community by doing an impression of Asian Americans speaking in a fake language that sounded kind of Asian. It well, it did sound kind of Asian, but what makes it worse is this guy Thomas Keon, who's the chancellor of Purdue Northwest, which is in Hammond, Indiana, which is just south of Chicago. Uh, he was giving this gibberish Asian ching chong kind of talk. And then he said specifically, it would have been fine if he didn't de designate, Oh, this is Asian, but he said it on stage, December 10th at a commencement, a, a commencement exercise. He said, that was my Asian voice. That was my Asian attempted humor. Hmm. And, uh, and it's on YouTube. Go to my column on the Aldef blog. And there's a link didn't get to the clip. He was trying to be good natured. So who, who, whose future? Uh, who who has who holds his future in their hands? Well, here's the thing. He's uh, the CEO and chancellor of this Purdue Northwest. the 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 faculty has voted to uh, gave him a no confidence vote and demanded his resignation. He refuses. The board of trustees accepted his apology and then refused to, uh, to uh, fire him, instead reprimanding him. And now the only people or only person who can give justice to the Asian American community who is demanding his head is an Asian American president, newly um, inaugurated Asian American president of Purdue on January 1st, a fellow by the name of Dr. Meng Chang became the president of Purdue, all of Purdue. And it's up to him now to either say, Hey, Thomas Keon, take a hike or to say, uh, 
Thomas Keon, I have your balls in my hand. You'd be a good boy. I don't know what the politics is going to be. You got professors that you talk to. They know, they know that academic politics is kind of strange. But so my my rule, and you tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. One mistake, one bad joke mm-hmm. that isn't a part of a a, a continuing problem of. Does he have a history of persecuting uh, Asian American students? Does he have a history of saying these things? Or was it just something that he accidentally blurted out that revealed probably a little too much about him? But is he a serial racist? Well, you know, this is an important distinction. I mean, the fact that he harbors it in his soul, we should be happy that he let it out. Because now we see, I mean, you were, we were talking about news, right? It, news is what people don't want you to see. News is what people don't want you to know. Well, now we know. We have a racist in our midst. What right. do we I'm not, do def- I'm, not, I'm not defending him. He, I, I know, I know. Attempting, I mean, I read John McWhorter in the New York Times, and he was defending him. So I immediately thought, well, if McWhorter's defending him, this guy has to go. <laughs> well, but, yeah, but McWhorter's but, defense was, like, ridiculous. But the consensus uh, seems to be on everything. If it's a one-off, you let the person skate. Uh, I think the guy is has been privileged and protected uh, enough to date that when he blurts out this thing totally intentionally, Voluntary. This is not an accident. And then he cops to it and says, yes, that was an Asian accent. I think he has no business in a leadership position. That's all. You know, I, I, I'm all for, you know, give a guy a break if he's, you know, really a nice guy. You know, he does great diversity things, supposedly, for uh, the Latino community, which is like 24% of Purdue Northwest. The Asian Americans are only 3%, so maybe he thinks he can get away with it. But I just think that if you know, if you are the Asian American president of Purdue University, and in your leadership ranks, you have a very public racist in your, you know, you know, amongst amongst your top officials, I think you got to do something. Okay, I would never presume to tell anybody not to be offended. People have a right to be offended, mm. and uh, I and I don't know what is a felony. You know, is it did he commit a felony? And you you believe he did. Well, I don't I don't think it was a felony. I mean, it wasn't a it's not a hate crime, well, a social but, felony in terms of. Yeah, yeah I look, I think I, I think the point is he is in a leadership position where he represents the university. Right. And that should I think that should count for something. But here's here's the political thing. It is pretty just the stupidity alone. Yeah. But I, this is the politics I think is is going on. The president of Purdue that brought on this Asian American guy is Mitch Dan or was Mitch Daniels, the former Republican governor of Indiana. Ten years he was president of Purdue. He he wants to be president or senator or something. And he loves this guy, Meng Chang. And Meng Chang is really one of those, you know, immigrants from Hong Kong whose superstar status he got double you know, degrees at Stanford was a, a, a prof- professorial star at Princeton was brought over to Purdue. He's golden boy. 
and he also represents a kind of new uh, a new kind of race politics in America where sort right. of like John James, you know, who, who's speaking out for Kevin McCarthy, the African-American from from Michigan. That is where, you know, you can be a person of color and, you know, you say, hey, you know, fellow wokey. But no, no, he's a right. Kevin McCarthy acolyte. Okay. He's a, uh, oh, we, have, we have to wrap it up. Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And he's a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. When are you in New York? When, when are you doing your play? I'm doing a one-man play. I mean, I, I do this podcast. We have to wrap it up. Oh, so. okay. Thursday, February 16th. And I'll uh, go to amok.com, and I'll put some information up there. But Thursday, February 16th through March 4th. At okay. New York City Frigid Fringe under St. Mark's. And plug your other social media. and At uh, Emil Amok on Twitter. I guess we're still there. Uh, Facebook. For those Facebook folks, uh, emilguillermo.media. Also, uh, amok.com. Fantastic. Thank you, Emil. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right. Buckle in. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us for nearly a quarter of a century. He ran Americans United for separation of church and state. Besides being a, a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court Bar, he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, and he has a new book coming out. I believe this would be your fifth book? I think it's my fourth book. It's coming out, we hope, in the spring, just months from now, three volumes. It's called Paid to Piss People Off, and it's in three volumes, Peace, Porn, and Prayers. The three Ps. They don't the three Ps. They don't teach the three P's in school. And- no, they, they they certainly don't. Uh, and there's some goofy commercial for a life insurance company where the guy moderating it says the three principles of life insurance are P, P and P. And he took price, price and price. Ah, That's stupid. Yes. It I is. like my title much better. Right. Peace. So we're going to talk about Kevin McCarthy and whether or not we're going to have a speaker in the 118th Congress. We're also going to talk about Donald Trump, how best Merrick Garland or Jack Smith or Letitia James or Fannie Willis should proceed. And we're going to talk about movies because you are a cinephile. I certainly am. I I'm a cinephile who's so happy that they just opened an eight theater multiplex of Showcase Deluxe, which are the nicest theaters in the world, or at least in the country. And um, I've been there. I just opened two weeks, three weeks ago. I've been there four or five times. I like it. Reverend, you put the sin in cinephile. I certainly try. Speaking of... The Republican Party. Tell us what you were told about Republicans when you were just starting out in show business. Yeah, I, when I first came to Washington, my first boss was a guy named Tilford Dudley. And Tilford Dudley was a 
a lawyer for labor unions and then came to Washington to work with the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. And he did a number of things. He was a lawyer for the National Labor Relations Board. He strangely, to the extent that people know him, they know him not because of the good work he did for the Roosevelt administration, but for a conflict in which he was flying from Boston to Washington, D.C., he was kind of flirting with a stewardess, and he said to her, could you just clarify one thing? How long is it going to take for us to get to Cuba? Oh, uh, yeah, that was not seen as funny. Uh, he was arrested and uh, he was uh, soon to be prosecuted, unfortunately, uh, for the people trying to prosecute. Uh, he was uh, later cleared. And his argument was that he had a constitutional right to joke. Oh, good. Sounded like a good theory. It didn't work at trial, but it did work on the appeal. But Ted Dudley, the first day that I worked for him, he said, let's go to lunch at the Supreme Court cafeteria, which is a place I used to go to lunch hundreds of times after that. They have good Cuban food there, as I understand. Uh, yeah, they do. They really do have great Cuban sandwiches. And mm -hmm. um, so we we sat there and the, fir the first guy that came up to talk to him was the lobbyist for the Friends Committee on National Legislation, which is the Quaker lobbying group. And the Quakers were the only people at that time who admitted that what they did was lobby for peace. They did not say, uh, well, we are studying legislation to turn it into information for our members. That's the cover right. everybody used. But you're talking about the Johnson Amendment and the possibility of losing your tax exempt status if you are a religious organization admitting to law. Well, right. No, not exactly, because um, you have broad latitude to do advocacy you just can't in any way endorse or oppose candidates for public office but that's a little different so ted says to this guy how are you going with your memoir and he said uh i almost finished it and he said well what's the title and he said i'm gonna call it memoirs of a wasted life and of course <laughs> this is in the middle of vietnam and uh it yeah. was a it was a clever little line then he leaves and ted dudley says to me barry i think you should know one thing the republican party is the party of criminals and i thought that's rather harsh i mean i barely know this man and uh, he's telling me that one party i'll have to lobby um they're all crooks but of right. course the confirmation of that comes on a regular basis when you look at the any of the comparisons even the ones done by the best vetting organizations how many crooks were there in the nixon administration how many crooks were there in the bush administration the reagan administration and of course the donald trump administration it dwarfs the number in the Carter years, the Obama two terms, and uh, and, and now with Biden. I mean, and, and but you know, I I know we have some Republicans who still listen. Yeah, 
in a court of law. Yeah. You, 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 there, there is no moral relativism. There is when you go before a judge and you swear in a Bible and a jury convicts you, you can measure which administration racks up more convictions than others. And absolutely nobody, nobody went to prison. I don't think from the Obama administration. Nobody. Right. That's correct. Nobody. Nobody. Part, I think uh, there was somebody in the Carter administration who I believe ended up. Bert uh, Lance. Bert Lance convicted of something. Yeah, uh, bank, it was he was OMB and it was his bank. He had a bank in Georgia. Yeah, he did. And it was so complicated. The judge threw out a lot of the charges. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Which, um, but um yeah, it, there's no question. There's no way you can measure the criminality of Republicans and Democrats and not always find that Republicans do tend to foster. Maybe maybe it's in their genes. They're crooks. That does that mean everyone is a crook? No, but it dwarfs in magnitude the number of people convicted of any crimes in Democratic administrations. And that's what poor, stupid Kevin McCarthy is up against. He's trying to herd 218 criminals, try to find 218 criminals who will do something for someone other than themselves, who will do something good for the country. He's screwed. And he, he people say he's stupid. And it's been confirmed by several sources. He is not a bright guy, even Correct. Republican. He's not a bright guy. I hear he can't even count. So <laughs> seriously, that he can't count the vote. Right. Of course. And uh, which is why so far there have been 10 that he's lost. Who replaces him, though, in the Republican Party? Who who in the back bench? Yeah. I do have a theory about this. If Go Republicans ahead. were smart, they would immediately try to get Elise Stefanik, who's a congresswoman from uh, Utica and parts of the Adirondacks in New York State. And she started out as a kind of conventional Republican. But since she's been in, she's moved further and further and further to the right. And uh, she was an early in the round one or two. She actually put uh, Kevin McCarthy's name in as speaker. So sh she has the credibility with the far right. I don't know if she has the credibility with the true nuts, but he can lose four votes. She he can lose. She, yeah, she replaced Liz Cheney. She replaced Liz Cheney as the kind of third in command right. of the House Republicans. And uh, she... Although she was annoying during particularly the first impeachment hearing by the House Judiciary Committee, she she appeared to actually make a few substantive comments as opposed to somebody like Jim Jordan, who was clearly only interested in delay, delay and delay. And uh, she's uh, the but there's a collateral benefit to her. She can be painted as the anti Nancy Pelosi. And most importantly, for Republicans who think about it, she might be able to gain back 
those white suburban women that they all lost during the last midterms. I mean, that's a trifecta of reasons. Pretty hard right, a woman and the anti-Nancy Pelosi. Right. But I don't think the 20 defectors are going to cotton to her because she's Harvard. She was a never Trumper. She was, I believe, a disciple of Paul Ryan's. She was, but those and a, and a and an opportunistic infection. She'll go whichever way she can to get support. I mean, she's not a real Trump supporter, even though she says she is. Yeah, well, but remember, a lot of people that were anti-Trumpers, anybody but Trump, and remember. She has moved. I mean, you can look at her record and you could say, well, she was a moderate conservative. But mm-hmm. now you look at it and go, is this the record of Lauren Boebert or Elise Stefanik? And the difference is not very great. So I think for those reasons, it would be the best solution if McCarthy can ever be convinced to stop these endless losses that he's he's now, you know, I think he lost 19 people on the first ballot. The last couple of ballots, he's lost 21. I mean, notwithstanding all the commentary, particularly on CNN, about how they're imminently they're going to find a resolution of this. There's no apparent resolution. And some of the deals that they're talking about him cutting are really catastrophic. I mean, the one everybody's focused on is, oh, he'll um, if, if, if he will have to face a challenge to his leadership position uh, if a single member of the House objects to what he's doing. I mean, that's bad for him. The most serious is he will pick the persons on the rules committee the rules committee is arguably the most important uh committee in the house this is where they make the decisions about how to bring a measure to the floor of the house or even whether to bring it to the house floor i mean we used to in the days that i was working on the first amendment or fighting the draft we cared very much about and screwed up the rules committee on a regular basis because they were so important. They can come up with what they've been coming up with. And one of the few legitimate criticisms of of the Republicans is they always have a closed rule, which means no amendments. Back in the days when I was doing this, we'd have hundreds of amendments. Mm-hmm. And and he'd find somebody in the rules committee who would say, well, I, I believe there are the 120 amendments and uh, we can't, you know, we can't do that. But let's let's limit it to 10. This right. is an extraordinary power. And what Nancy Pelosi tended to do was just say, take it or leave it. You can't make any changes. And and that's um, it's what the Republicans say is that's bad for democracy. It's only bad for democracy some of the time. It doesn't eliminate the possibility of screwing things up. And if he gets too many people 
that he gets to put on the rules committee, there's going to be nothing accomplished, which, of course, is kind of the position of almost every Republican. Don't be fooled by the notion that they want to legislate because they don't want to legislate. They want government so small, as one of the right wing characters used to work against, they want it small enough that it can be drowned in a bathtub. Right. That's what they all want. So right. they're they're filled with crooks and they don't like government at all. So, right. I mean, but it's it's tough. I mean, I don't see how he explains and is how McCarthy explains why he's so persistent, but then eventually gives up that is going to take a better speechwriter than he's got. Right. So as as you saying, the Freedom Caucus, members of the Freedom Caucus are going to get more seats on the powerful House Rules Committee. I guess term limits now they're going to try to pass term limits for members of Congress. I don't know if that's constitutional. No, I think it arguably is constitutional, but it doesn't have a lot of support. I mean, most of these guys are going to be there literally till they die. You know, and, I mean, they, and, and thereafter and thereafter, they will hover over right. the proceedings. Um, yeah. You know, in theory, you can actually if you're an ex member of the House, you can actually ask for and get floor privileges. But that, of course, looks so bad that nobody does it. But in theory, you could do that. But I had an interesting conversation. One second. Excuse yeah. me, hold that thought for one second. And the other big uh, concession that McCarthy reportedly might be willing to make is a vote. One congressperson can bring a vote on the gavel to to vote to recall to a confidence vote correct i think he agreed to five bringing the vote but the freedom caucus wants just one, one person one person to do it and you know that if he agrees to that uh he he might get those 20 votes because they weren't going to accomplish anything in the next two years, other than a lot of histrionics, a lot of speechifying investigations. They're not passing any legislation. Is there anything that the Freedom Caucus wants passed? I guess a balanced budget amendment. And Well, they're not going to get that, but they are. But they want huge military expenditures. I mean, every time you talk about any kind of cut in the defense budget, these are the first people out of the gate saying, no, we want more. And when you hear somebody like Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene bemoaning how much money we're giving in support of Ukraine, they're kind of wrong about the numbers. But they also can't seriously believe that they don't want to be prepared for a war in Europe. You you can't be a Republican unless you're Ron Paul, maybe, who um, who says well, we, we, we don't have any alliances. We're not we, we don't care what happens. They can't do that. They're willing to do that and increase the defense budget. And they know they have to 
surpass it with a few other programs, like the space program, which they right. all love to. And so we do have a budget, I guess, for 2023, for the most part. Yeah. Going to be the real fight will be the budget for the continuing resolutions for 2023. We'll see some uh, threats of falling off a fiscal cliff. Right. Whomever is in charge. And then the big fight will be over the budget of 2024. And that's a big election year. Yeah. And they do have to uh, vote again on the debt ceiling. They have to raise the debt ceiling because the, the expenditures this year are going to get us, you know, once again, as almost every other year to the precipice of being a, a country that has no real credit. These constitutional crises, you are a member of the Supreme Court bar. Besides being an ordained minister, you are a, an attorney. These constitutional crises, they seem almost fabricated to distract, to put on a light show, to keep us entertained. Do they mean anything? How, how much danger would this country be if we didn't have a functioning legislative branch? It is conceivable we don't have a speaker, which means we don't right. have a House of Representatives, which means That's right. we get a spending bill or a war authorization or oversight. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think they. Yeah, I I think you're largely correct that these are just these are kind of uh, points to be made. If you look at the numbers of the twenty or twenty one people who have consistently voted against McCarthy, they're all in really really red safe Republican districts. They don't have anything to worry about. Even Lauren Boebert, who's kind of universally assumed to be a complete nitwit. Um, I mean, you know, she won uh, re-election. Uh, she's likely to keep winning elections. They I mean, don't have it anything. Was, it was like 500 votes, though. Yeah, but I mean, she. I don't think she's worried about re-election. I really don't. I think she thinks she will maybe be a little less inflammatory. But the red meat people in those red meat states will keep electing virtually all of the 21 people who are descending. They don't have to worry about what this looks like, because remember, they're going after the votes of people who also don't want the government to govern. Right. They don't want it. So they, they have nothing to lose. But something like the the debt ceiling, the problem is not so much what actually happens as what commentators will tell you will happen, among other things, to the stock market if the budget ceiling is not lifted. And that terror, and it's very real because you've got all these hedge fund managers, you've got individual people looking at their uh, retirement plans. And, you know, the thought of losing 10 or 20 percent of your your assets is terrifying. And, and and default, you know, if if they downgrade our debt or there's a threat of it defaulting, it has been downgraded. Thanks to Republicans. Yeah. I think under the Obama administration, our debt got downgraded. Well, yes, it did. It let's, did. Let's well, here's, 
Yeah. Well, let me go back to this. Uh, I was having a little conversation this afternoon and somebody said, why doesn't a a Democrat stand up and nominate George Santos for Speaker of the House? Now you're and, talking. Yeah. And and I, it would be a great idea, but I don't think anybody's really in the mood to do that seriously. But you can imagine a speech that they would give. They could say, uh Congressman to be, remember, you don't even have to be in the current Congress to be the speaker. Uh, Congressman to be Santos graduated from a prestigious high school and then attended Baruch College and New York University. Not go through that whole thing. He is the son of Holocaust survivors who fled Nazis to settle in Brazil. Not he, why he is Catholic now, but he used to be Jewish. Not and on and on and on. And then they this would be hilarious. It would be noteworthy it would give whoever would do that a remarkable shot at being lauded on every late night television show but of course he wouldn't do it and santos you know before this all happened the, the day that they were supposed to elect mccarthy on tuesday one of his ex boyfriends uh gave an interview in which he said that santos uh and he lived together, uh, but Santos never paid anything, never paid the rent, never paid the cable bill. And that he once sent the boyfriend two tickets to Hawaii that turned out to be a complete fabrication. And then finally, he stole the boyfriend's cell phone and never gave it back. So, so that, and then he gets in. He's there sitting by himself, kind of in the kitty row, sitting next to somebody who is not even his kid, alone. Nobody will even speak to him. And he he announces on his website that he was uh, confirmed uh, for, to membership in the House. Nobody's done that. You can't do that without a speaker. And then today... You learn that he claimed credit for voting for a bill already. No. And he's not, yes. Really? Yes. 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 I don't. I don't know what the bill was about, and I'm sure he didn't. But he claimed credit for having voted for a piece of legislation. Wow. The guy. If you know, when you lie all the time, it becomes so much a part of who you are that you don't think twice about lying and lying lying again never worry about it we're gonna miss him won't we well it's interesting uh it's hard to get rid of a member of congress you may remember adam clayton powell jr back in the early 70s he was engaged in all kinds of illegal uh activities and what the house did in about a, a two to one vote they said, we're stripping you of your committee assignments. Uh, we're not letting you use the facilities of the House. Adam Clayton Powell went to the Supreme Court and won. 
And the court basically said, if you aren't willing to go the route of expulsion, which requires a two thirds vote, you are making up requirements for somebody that the Constitution does not allow. So you really have to nail them. And why, if you were a Democrat, would you want to throw Santos out or would you just want to hear him continue and to lie over and over again? Yeah, of course. Keep him around, make him the speaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so yeah. let, let's turn to our limited time left. This is great. Sure. Let's talk about so, movies. you mentioned uh, you mentioned the movie Amsterdam, which I started to watch. And I I went, wow, this is different, odd, crazy and compelling. But I didn't have time to finish it. But uh-huh. it looks great. And so defend Amsterdam and then we'll get to Babylon, <laughs> Empire of Light and the. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, Amsterdam was a huge flop at uh, in the theaters. It was a. It was reviewed terribly, although the trailer made it look incredibly interesting. Here you've got, you know, Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, Richard, uh, Robert De Niro in it. It looked like a great film. Chris Rock. Chris Rock. Everybody looked good. And I thought it was it was very good. I mean, I just streamed it. It wasn't even a movie theater up here in the wilderness uh, that was playing it. But it's it just was a flop. But I think it was you should definitely watch it to the conclusion. Okay. Uh, and then tell me about Babylon. Okay, Babylon is about, among other things, the transition that was so difficult for people who were stars in the silent film era to move into talkies. And it's it's very long. It's three hours and 15 minutes long. And a lot of it, shall we say, might have been cut. It should have been cut. But if you really like the movies and if you have any kind of connection to the silent movies, um, it's really well done. It, it's enthralling. It's got great actors in it. And it's um, it's a lot of fun. And I, I can't. This, couldn't, this is not a series. This is a movie. Yeah, Babylon. It's a movie. And, and who's in it? Um, uh, Margot Robbie's in it. <laughs> I'm, obsessed. I'm obsessed with her. And uh, uh, Brad Pitt's in it. I oh. mean, it and it even has uh, some really obscure uh, people who are only recognizable if you see a lot of bad movies like... Uh, uh, heck, the guy who no, was, this is my favorite. Hey, subject. I, yeah. I, I, if when I lived in Los Angeles, one of the cocktail questions was which period of Hollywood history would you like to live in? And I sure. always say right after World War One, the twenties, right before yep. talkies. I think silent movies must have been just a, a thrill. Everything was new. Mm-hmm. Anything was possible. Absolutely. So uh, this sounds really interesting. And if it's Brad Pitt, how can you go wrong with Brad Pitt? Yeah, I mean, he wasn't even bad in Bullet Train, which is, you know, uh, streaming services. But my father. Is is Babylon streaming on? No, no, it's not. No, you'd have to actually go to a theater to see. And, And what is the theater? What is that again? Well, I mean. 
you should see it. It's a, it's a luxurious film. You should see it in a good theater. Um, and um, okay, you, you, yeah, you, you, you come up here and I could take you to it, but it's, okay. you know, it's good. Avatar. Um, Avatar. Uh, seen Avatar yet? I've seen Avatar. I saw Avatar again at this marvelous new theater that's a complex. It's open literally five minutes from my house up here. Okay. And um, it's a better story than the first one. Um, it's spectacular in 3D. It uses 3D in ways that uh, are rarely used by the you're Marvel a fan of, people. I, I love think, 3Ds. I think in the Mies Commission, you said you prefer double D. Yeah, that was uh, actually All just right. to show you how obscure this can get. There is a, a film called Piranha D. And then there's another one called Piranha Double D. And I think the latter was in 3D. Okay. Anyway, so that Empire was good. Empire of Light. I like you being our resident film critic. Well, I'm happy to do that. Empire of Light is an extraordinary feel good movie about a relatively small duplex in the south of England and all of the machinations that go on with the, the staff. Um, it's, I don't want to say too much more, but I mean, it's, it, it, it will soon be streaming because there's almost nobody going to see it, but it's really a wonderful feel good film as is the Fablemans, which is a story about Steven Spielberg and, um, his family, that's his family growing up Jewish, it, it's well done and it is streaming already as well as in theaters. And the thing I like about these movies about movies is they do bring me back to some important parts of my childhood. My father, uh, during the depression had two jobs. He, he swept the floors of a candy factory and he played the piano at silent movie houses and it's a, you know, he'd tell these stories when he had Parkinson's disease very, for a long time. The last thing that he lost was the power to play the music he remembered playing in those silent movies. What, what was the soundtrack behind a Buster Keaton movie like The General? What was wow. the Ben Hur chariot race? And then the other was Spielberg. Spielberg made films early, very early. He he did what I did, which was to borrow my father's uh, eight millimeter camera and then do little action actions with uh, my friends. And uh, I didn't. I actually one of my friends is he still works in Hollywood. I just saw him at our high school reunion and um uh, he would film these things and I can't find any examples of it. I love to send him, but we would do, we would take classics illustrated comic books and then make a movie out of them that would last maybe 10 minutes. And uh, I have a, a scar above my uh, left eye from the filming of the Oregon trail <laughs> Because, yeah, because somebody dropped a toy, a really heavy wooden toy gun on my head. And it just about, as they say, just about took out my eye. 
So, but it it brings these things back. And I think you don't have to be quite as uh, engaged in films as I am, or perhaps you are uh, to, to say both, all three of those films are extraordinary. And if you really want a lesson in uh, history, there's a film that's streaming on a, a, a streaming service called Fandor, F-A-N-D-O-R, called uh, Movie Unfinished. And it's about an extraordinary film that I literally never heard of. It was made in the Warsaw Ghetto oh my by God. Hitler. Oh, my God. Oh, my Oh, my God. Unfinished film. You watched <laughs> that? Film. Yes, I did. Oh, my God. Well, what did you what did you think of it? Why? Why are you having this reaction? Well, uh, we're at it because this uh, unfinished film yeah. is about the Warsaw Ghetto. Goebbels sent a film crew in yeah. to convince the world that nobody was suffering <laughs> in the Warsaw Ghetto. And this movie is literally the outtakes from that movie. And they show how the residents of the Warsaw Ghetto were really living. And it is one of the most gruesome horror. It absolutely is. Bodies piled up. And I took one of my kids. Um, A little too young to see that. And he he stormed out. But it is a masterpiece you only watch it once only absolutely only once I, i'm haunt I, I haven't seen it i think in 10 years i just remember they would dress up uh these residents of the the warsaw ghetto in fancy clothes and have them act haughty and uh it, and that to me they would dress up these women yep. in fur uh to make it look mm-hmm. like they were uh, very uh, sophisticated and living high on the hog. And mm. there were some lingering shots of one of those women. Mm. That was so haunting. Yep. It, it, you know, it, people should see the movie. Mm-hmm. They uh, should. But you're right. Only once. And of course, the other point they were trying to make, the Nazis are trying to make is that if you were, in this lap of luxury within the Jewish community, you didn't even care about your own fellow Jews. So it was, look at, it's good, but even when it's not good, it's the fault of the wealthy Jews. I mean, it is pure propaganda, but it's very, very hard to watch. Right. They would take, I I haven't seen it in 10, 12 years, they would take misshapen people. Yes. And and put them in front of, Jews that they dressed up and they yep. Jews walk past them, step over them yep. as uncaring. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is author of a new book that comes out about the three P's. We'll be promoting that. Thank he, you. For a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for separation of church and state. Besides being a member of the Supreme Court bar, is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Stay out of trouble, Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Only 
good trouble. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right buckle in. Time now for the professors and Mary Ann. Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Professor Jonathan Bick teaches Star Trek on Saturdays. He also teaches the Twilight Zone on Fridays at office hours. And we're going to be doing a screening of a movie at office hours this Friday night. Which movie did you pick? Uh, So I'm considering uh, the trials of Henry Kissinger. Right. Good. Based on the book by uh, Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens. Right. So we'll talk more about office hours in a second. That's exciting. Professor Marianne Cummings is a particle physicist with the Fermi Lab, and she is parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. I don't think she can fix our parking tickets quite yet. Professor Anne Lee writes over at the Daily Co's under the handle Annie Lee. Everybody should read Professor Ann Lee at the Daily Co's. Among other things, she writes a, a nightly update on Ukraine, on the war in Ukraine. It comes out at midnight. And we're going to be talking about Damar Hamlin. We're going to be talking about uh, McCarthy and his quest for speakership. And we're going to be talking about uh, Turkey's defense minister meeting with Assad in Moscow. I don't know if he met with Assad in Moscow, but there's there's talk of a, a Russian diplomacy to bring peace to uh, Syria. Before we do all that, let's go to Norway, where Joe in Norway is standing by for ASMR for the eyeballs. You will be cooking while we talk. What will you be preparing? Good evening, David. I'm a bit famished tonight, so I thought I'd make a midnight snack. I was going to make fresh cavatelli pasta with a few little uh, ingredients I had around. I have a, a handful of cashew nuts here, some garlic, a tomato, and uh, coriander or cilantro. It's a bit wilted. See what I can make out of it. Maybe a pesto. Mm-hmm. And then I'll be making uh, fresh pasta. It's semolina, a mixture of semolina and white flour. You're going to make all your, from scratch. You make pasta from scratch. Yes. Okay. We're going to try. This is torture. This right is here. Worse. This is worse than being waterboarded. And before we go to Professor Marianne to talk about Damar Hamlin, I should mention that people really are hungry here in America, and that's why. You should all go to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. It is a food pantry for refugees who have made it to the San Francisco Bay Area. It was founded by Professor Adnan Hussein's parents. Go to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. Look at the food that they give. It's healthy food, it's whole foods, it's beans, it's nuts. And whatever money you give goes a long way when you're dispensing beans and rice and yogurt. Uh, This is a great cause. We create a lot of refugees here in the United States. Rahima 
uh, helps them. Professor Marianne DeMar Hamlin uh, was injured on Monday night. Right. Very terrifying. He seems to be doing better. Better. Yeah. What are but, your thoughts on this? Uh, my uh, family member pointed out uh, that actually there was one, there was a Detroit lion back in the 1970s, and now I vaguely remember that, that was killed, that had, uh, that was tackled and eventually died later that afternoon was brought off the was brought off the field that was in 1971 and i think i have vague memories of that but uh by the way this was one injury i didn't witness personally i mean i witnessed gruesome injuries in sports i witnessed the 1968 when i was a little kid boxing match olympics and i saw one of the, I think it was a Japanese guy, get knocked out, and he was essentially dead, even though he was crawling around on his hands and knees. He was brain dead at that point. I saw that. It was live, watching the Olympics. He later died. I was watching another Olympics several years later with my mother, that uh, iconic wild, uh, wide world of sports, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, and you see that guy. You saw that guy. Jumping off the alpine like jump and breaking his ankle. So it's just dangling with the ski still at all. Oh God, you know, so I, um, I saw, and I never watched football. I went over to a friend's place at university of Michigan to wait for him. And I actually saw that. Who is that guy? Joe Theismann was his Joe name. Mag, yeah. Yeah. Oh, horrible. I'm like, ah, <laughs> I'm watching all this stuff. I think 10 years ago, a University of Michigan basketball player was in the playoffs and they broke. I mean, it was a 20 year old. I mean, their bones are still per cartilage, right? He jumps up and he breaks his leg at a right angle. I, I witnessed that. I saw that unlike apparently the Joe Theismann they, uh, incident, they didn't play it over and over again. I saw it live. So it's like. Yeah, it's I just happened to be around watching live all these horrible accidents, you know, so I I'm, I kind of cringe even now. I, I, I refuse to watch uh, gymnastics for years and years because, you know, I knew how dangerous this was. So we but have is- Buffalo Bill safety, DeMar Hamlin. He's a 24-year-old. Yeah. He is on a, a, a ventilator, but he's mm-hmm. able to squeeze hands and write messages. Yeah. And apparently he suffered a, a heart attack yeah. on the field. Was it caught by the game? Do we know? We have. We don't know. And by the way, I have to say, and this might be completely uh, coincidental, but there are three pe- younger guys, as in younger than I am, who are, were otherwise that I know personally, one's very close to me, who uh, were in the ICU with massive heart failure in the last year. And I don't know if it's a COVID related thing, or maybe I'm just older than I think I am, but uh, these were not old people. Um, but um, yeah, there was, I mean, I listened online and there were several doctors explaining how a, a blow to the heart in the right direction, um, you know, could cause massive bruising and swelling and then the, you know, the inability of the heart to function. Right. So, yeah, that was, but there was something, you know, 
listening this morning, I was listening. I woke up at the, I rarely listen to serious XM sports, but we had a power glitch and it just sort of came on on this channel, but they were discussing, four people were discussing it. And one guy was pointing out that, you know, we think of these football players making fabulous salaries and yeah, they do. A lot of them do, but he was pointing out that over the years that the football league owners have been getting concessions out of players. So yes, you have a you you have a a pension, you have uh, all kinds of benefits, but they don't kick in until you're fully vested. And that means, you know, 3 years if you're playing every game and 4 years if you're, you know, playing at least half of them. I can't remember what they were saying. And this young man was only had been in for 2 years. So the question was, yeah, thoughts and prayers and all that stuff, but will the NFL do the right thing if this guy is permanently disabled? If he survives, and it looks like he might, but is permanently disabled and will have health issues for the rest of his life, and like most people most people that go through the football, who are in professional football, they went to uh, they went on a football scholarship. I remember back in the day when, um, who was it? Um, the 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 black leader that ran for president in 1974. Why am I blanking on his name? Jesse. 84. Jesse Jackson. Uh, you know, he back when he was breathing fire in the old days. I he went out to uh, he was at Northern Illinois, and I was at Fermilab as a young student, and we all went out to see him. And he was going on and on about, you know, the labor of black people and minorities and the working class in general. And he says, and yes, of course, the major universities who never are interested in recruiting for scientists or mathematicians or English majors in our neighborhoods. But there is one part department that always shows up to recruit in our neighborhood, and that's the gladiator department. And, you know, he had a point. These guys... Not all, most of them don't get a really good education. You know, they're there to play football. And then if they hit the jackpot and get into NFL, you know, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the goal. And yet, even now, if you have a young person who's 24 years old, who is permanently disabled, is the NFL even, I mean, the best thing they could do is say, we're taking care of this guy for life, no matter what happens. Well, let me ask let me ask the professors this. Yeah. It it seems to me when CET first became part of uh the nomenclature, what, 2013, right? Mm-hmm. We were told football wouldn't last that that the game was doomed. Uh they haven't really done anything about CET. They can't make helmets. I know they've changed a couple of rules about how hard you can hit. Football is doing very well. Thank you very much. But it's not ending well for veterans. Is is football going to last uh, 10 years from now? Are we going to have a moment where the Surgeon General says this game cannot continue? I doubt it. He's I mean, about the money. Not made it safer since we first learned about CET, right? See, yeah. Chronic encephalitis, traumatic 
encephalopathy. I think that's what it is. C T. Oh, C T E. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, business is going to keep it going. It. Yeah. Uh, it. They're trying to make it more international. They had the first uh, NFL game in Germany this year. I don't think it's going to to change. And in fact, it's it's coming more capitalist in the sense of. Uh, 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 students in major sports having more control over their intellectual property. So it's mm-hmm. been become more commodified or marketized at that, at that particular level. In fact, uh, athletes are now more part of a kind of weird free market with uh, a more liberalized uh, transfer rules, etc., that, that creates a, a situation where on the one hand, you're, get a little bit more economic support and oh, we just lost professor ann lee so uh she should be back and she wanted to talk about kevin mccarthy so why don't we go to professor jonathan bick and tell us what is happening with kevin mccarthy and what they're demanding what the demands are okay so as most people know, the Republicans won control of the House in the latest election, and they control 222 uh, of the seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, you need 218 to have a majority. And um, they're making history right now in, in the House of Representatives. The last time the election for Speaker of the House um took more than a single ballot was in 1923 and it took nine votes to uh to end that uh, contest uh so far there have been 11 votes in the house of representatives unless another one has been taken in the last 10 minutes i don't, <laughs> I don't know um <clears throat> so this crisis effectively blocks the house from functioning it prevents lawmakers from being sworn in uh, and it puts off the adoption of new rules that govern the chamber and uh, it makes uh, passing legislation impossible for the Congress. So more than half of the lawmakers who voted against Kevin McCarthy, who was seen as the uh, most likely uh, candidate for Speaker of the House, um, explicitly denied the results of the 2020 presidential election. And that compares with about 15% of the 222 total members of the Republican caucus in the House. And at least 180 of the uh, 222 House Republicans have questioned the 2020 election, according to a uh, analysis done by the New York Times. So the vast majority have questioned it. It's just that... um, uh, the majority of those who are opposing Mr. McCarthy uh, have explicitly denied that uh, Joe Biden won the presidency. Including Kevin McCarthy, didn't he? He did do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so at least 95 percent of the uh, people oppose of uh, the Republicans opposing Mr. McCarthy, are members of the House Freedom Caucus or were recently endorsed by its campaign arm. By contrast, just about one fifth of all House Republicans are believed to be part of that caucus, which was founded in 2015 
and considered to be one of the farthest right groups in the House. 14 of the 15 incumbents who voted against Kevin McCarthy were among the 139 House Republicans who on January 6, 2021, voted to overturn the 2020 Electoral College results. Interestingly, uh, Kevin McCarthy's political action committee cut a deal with the Club for Growth, which is a conservative anti-tax group that uh, has opposed Mr. McCarthy's bid for speaker, agreeing not to spend money to support candidates in open primaries and safe Republican seats. And this had been a major demand of conservatives among the Republicans, because they believe it will um, make it easier for extreme candidates to prevail over more mainstream Republicans. So uh, this uh, group of 20 uh, who have not voted for McCarthy uh, have managed to extract uh, concessions from him. Uh, Some of those are... um, that one that one would allow that a single lawmaker uh, could force a snap vote to oust the speaker. And McCarthy agreed to this. Um, he did agree to because I know that it was four or five that he agreed to. Now he's agreed to one. Yes, as far as I that, that's the latest that I have. Yeah, uh, he agreed to support a new rule that will allow Oh, I'm sorry that you're right. Uh, he had agreed to to a motion that would allow five house makers to bring a motion to vacate the chair action, right. a, a procedure that could result in a no confidence vote. But the word is that he may have agreed to bringing it down to one. Correct. That's right. That, in one of the latest concessions he's made. Right. He's all, uh, uh, another concession is that the right wing faction uh, will be allowed to select a third of the party members on the powerful rules committee, which controls what legislation reaches the floor and in what form. And um, one of the concessions is that spending bills will be open to debate in which any lawmaker could force a vote on proposed changes, including those designed to scuttle or sink the measure. So the most conservative Republicans uh, oppose any spending that would uh, benefit or ordinary Americans. Uh, you know, I, I think they, they pretty much favor military spending um and uh pork you know for their districts but uh as far as uh spending on uh, you know infrastructure or health care or social security or anything like that they want to be able to stop anything that would help uh those that kind of spending but there may be a silver lining here uh david uh you know at least uh this has delayed the functioning of a Republican-dominated House of Representatives. Uh, one of the things that they want to uh, pass is called the Family and Small Business Taxpayer Protection Act. Mm. 
which would re, which is a Orwellian name, uh, it would rescind 90% of the new funding for the Internal Revenue Service that was included in last year's Inflation Reduction Act. This would eliminate the new laws, $45.6 billion to enforce the tax code for people making more than $400,000 and repeal an additional $26 billion in IRS funding that would include, among other things, a pilot for a free e-file program to make it easier for people with relatively simple tax returns to file their returns without the help of uh, for-profit businesses. That's good. That's a good thing. But they're, you know, that's one of the things that would be cut if they pass this act. So, um, and this is, um, you know, this is beyond what they already managed to uh, insert into the omnibus uh, omnibus spending plan that was recently passed by the Congress, uh, which forced a 2% cut in annual IRS funding. So they don't like the IRS because uh, it collects taxes to fund the government, and they're just generally against spending, unless it's for the military or, or police-like functions. And... Um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much their their philosophy. Wonderful people. Professor uh, Adnan Hussein, you wanted to say something about this? Oh, well, I don't know if the um, observations moment has passed, but the fact that there have been 11 to uh, this moment failed uh, votes for the speakership of the House just raises a lot of questions to me about the conduct of the this election. I'm wondering, are they using mail-in ballots? Um, is there voter fraud going on? Uh, you know, how is it that they failed to come to resolution, especially when you tell me that there's this Freedom Caucus? I mean, who are these people? You had some identification of them, but it, it, it does seem like a question. In any case, anyway, I I thought like you you did a good job of telling us about the various concessions that McCarthy is making. Clearly, the danger here is that he would be completely beholden to and dependent on a very radical, small fringe in an unstable situation. Um, Of course, this is exactly what uh, House progressives uh, could have done to uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, two years ago, but refused to do so. Um, But at least at this point, um, I read an interesting article by Robert Reich in The Guardian, and I don't know why it's being published in The Guardian in the UK and not in The Washington Post or uh, The New York Times, where, you know, many more Democratic lawmakers might uh, come across it. But he suggested that uh, Democrats should ally with at least the handful of remaining non-MAGA extreme uh, Republicans to choose a different speaker. And he had two suggestions himself. Um, I think it was Frank Upton and um, Upton, who is no longer in Congress, but he's from Michigan and a friend of Joe Biden's. Right. OK. And he, he, he admitted that that he might not actually be that acceptable even to well, some of the other Republicans. But there was David Joyce. Uh, who's from Ohio, whom he suggested as a better figure. 
Now, I think more importantly than who one might find as a rival candidate is the question of the leverage, because this is, again, an opportunity for leverage if uh, they would only use it. And so whoever you might put forward as an acceptable alternative candidate to McCarthy, um, you know, uh, House Democrats should um, make some demands. Um, You know, everyone's worried about the debt ceiling. People are concerned about committee memberships. Um, people are concerned about subpoena powers and investigations. I heard Rokana suggesting, you know, that there should be some kind of negotiation on on various media um, that he that that he comes on to. Unfortunately, one of the things he said was that, you know, we got to be concerned about, you know, the fact that uh, Republicans will want to uh, have all kinds of investigations and testimony involving Hunter Biden. And I thought, who cares? So what? Let them have that. That's not of concern to the rest of the country. We don't care about that. But we do care about some of these policies. Um, you know, we do care about the debt ceiling. We do care about some of these key issues. And I think the idea of using some leverage is a good one. I hope the idea takes off. Yeah. Professor Henley, you're back. Your thoughts on all this? Thank you. Uh, No disagreement there. I think uh, it's more interesting to see the sort of tactical arrangements that have occurred and uh, uh, all these sort of stunts that that are being made by the Freedom Caucus. Actually, they're sort of interesting in their own kind of bizarre way of, you know, posing uh, uh, this fellow uh, from... um, from Florida, uh, because he's black, they they wanted to juxtapose him against uh, Hakeem Jeffries. So it was sort of interesting to see that. And then the stunt pulled by Matt Gates to uh, to the, nominate Trump. The thing they did with Herschel Walker to run against yes. Warnick. They picked this guy Byron Donald, I believe is his name. And yes, Donald's. Yes, uh, he's. Uh, you know, yeah, he's exactly like that. It's incredibly cynical to to do that. Corey uh, Bush, Corey Bush called them out on this and said he that she said by Byron Donalds is a Republican. He might he might be African American, but he is not uh, an advocate for our people. So, <laughs> so this well, doesn't con- this doesn't uh, convince you that the Republicans uh, don't aren't racist. they love putting up backbenchers you know it's just uh it is just getting as uh, some some analysts have pointed out this is just airtime for um the freedom caucus they just simply it's performative for them to do these kinds of things uh you know i i i think that at some some bright and shining moment that trump sort of surge you can see that actually in twitter that uh once gates started doing this then there there was a little flurry in in twitter to do that to be countered of course by the fact that trump has come out again in favor of mccarthy now unfortunately some people have actually proposed the scenario where trump would get elected and for some reason mccarthy would would be sort of the the shadow vice speaker and would do all the work, but Trump would, you know, be ceremonially placed there. I don't think that's getting any traction, but it's sort of interesting. The reality, of course, is a numerical one. I think all that McCarthy needs to get relative to the numbers is six of the 
the Freedom Caucus people to um, vote present. I think that's the threshold number. If he can get that, uh, essentially McCarthy wins. So whatever they need to do in the GOP, and and as I said, I, I think it's uh, these are this is a scenario that's already played out. I think the GOP just simply wants the airtime. You know, they and it's not doing them any good because all it shows is that Democrats are disciplined. They all vote and they're voting us a block. So, you know, maybe that's that's where we are right now. That's what we used to say about the Republicans just two or three years ago, that they're all disciplined. They vote as a block. And, you know, again, I think what's lost here was in and it's tragic. I mean, it's all fun and games over there on the clown side. But, you know, uh, the fact is, is and this is, I think, serious, the the progressives, particularly the squad, but the people that were that uh, Kyle Kalinske and those others had recruited to run as Justice Democrats. That was the whole point of them. Kyle Kalinske explicitly said he wanted to have a progressive version version of the Tea Party, of the people that made John Boehner's life miserable. But they got real policy concessions. Uh, The squad and uh, uh, and other progressives just mugging for their selfies and with the thumbs up and pointing to the Democrats. I mean, this is not the own they think it is. It's just telling them they're just broadcasting that, hey, we're good little boys and girls. We've been brought to heel by like well-trained dogs by the Democratic Party leadership. They would never do that. And that is, I mean, we need a new, more attitudinal kind of progressive because if they thought that they could infiltrate a system and and eventually get good at the game that Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, for that matter, Louis Gohmert and Mitch McConnell and those clowns all excel at, and they would be able to disrupt and transform the, uh, the system, that's delusional. I mean, maybe 10, 20 years, they'll get those plum committee chairmanships if they behave themselves, by which point they will be so beholden to people. And they will be like 10 or 20 years away from their whatever grassroots activism they had. And so they're totally surrounded and absorbed the culture of D.C. So, you know, um, I... I actually think that things will settle down in a week. I don't know if it's going to be McCarthy or Jim Jordan. It won't matter. It'll be somebody who completely, uh, you know, toes the corporate military industrial complex, national security state line. And we'll, you know, the leadership of both parties will settle into their good cop, bad cop roles as far as, you know, like populism is concerned as far as the Democrats are concerned for the, uh, or the people in general. And, uh, you know, it'll, again, it's just like we said two years ago, this was an amazing opportunity for the progressives to be serious. I mean, you didn't have, you don't have to be a clown show. You could be, have a two or three non-negotiable demands, have those fights publicly, you know, what those guys are fighting for, Bollert and all, I mean, nobody cares about However, the kinds of things they promised they would bring the ruckus and disrupt for Medicare for all, Green New Deal, living wage, Medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, the stars were so aligned. 
to like push something like that through. And they did not step up. And that was just a, they weren't going to have that situation anytime soon again. And they took a big pass and, and we're going to be suffering for that. The 20, the, the 20 far right conservatives. Am I wrong in saying they can't be bought off? They are true believers. They're, they are ideologues. They're not looking for money. They're looking that there's something pure to them. Professor Hussein. I don't think so at all. Um, I think uh, they're uh, in it for attention um, if you uh, think that there's an ideology, I mean, one component of it is, you know, chaos is good because it gives us a chance to, you know, gain attention and show that we're owning the libs and that we're owning the, you know, people who are bought off by the libs and uh, so on. I don't think they are true believers at all. Um, they may have like some bigoted, you know, uh, orientations that um, define their politics, but their show people performing for an audience that has been created over some generation, generation and a half of disillusion with U.S. party politics and brought to a fever pitch by the Trump movement. And they're playing to that audience and uh, trying to make their own careers. And they've realized that there is a way to build your career, not by following party loyalty and being good little girls and boys, the way, you know, Marianne was just castigating the progressives and following seniority and, you know, showing respect for the rules and the institution, but that there is a way to political power and prestige and attention, you know, through causing a ruckus and being a disruptor and taking the ethics of social media into the halls of Congress. And that's, I think, what we're seeing here. Right. I mean, I Bernie they Sanders, can easily be bought off. I mean, um, Bernie Sanders did that somewhat. He was able to chart his own independent course. Um, he he was uh, considered the amendment king in in the Senate. Now, very rarely do people bring up votes on their own and, and, and pass it through. Most votes are, you know, what they call must pass spending bills and things like that. But once in a while, Bernie Sanders got one of those in, too. But for the most part, he was able to get amendments to these must spend bills in a significant way. I mean, significant progressive amendments to spending bills and build up a brand so that he actually was in danger of becoming president of the United States twice. And how do you get Medicare for all? How do you put the health insurance companies out of business, which you have to do in order to pass Medicare for all or keep Medicare for all? How do you do that without... 20 Democrats willing to shut the government down and shut the entire system down. We need that. On mm -hmm. the left. We need a movement that's not afraid of a national strike. That says, hey, no pain, no gain. Yeah. Uh, we're going to shut the government down. Really? You're worried about the bond market? Well, pass Medicare for all because we're shutting down uh, and and it would force 
supposedly CNN, MSNBC, Fox News to air the complaints of these 20 renegades. And supposedly the American people would say, yeah, come to think of it. Healthcare in this country is for profit. It's a joke and it's killing us unless we have 20 doctrinaires willing to do what the, the freedom caucus is willing to do. Uh, we're not going to get Medicare for all. It's that simple. You, you have yep. to you have to take it and you have to shut the whole thing down. Yeah, you have to be willing to sacrifice your career, too. I mean, nobody worries about these clowns on the right, really, because they're tolerated because none of them really are going to. And that includes Trump are really going to upset the system. The person that had everyone terrified, you know, among Democratic and Republican leadership was Bernie Sanders. Right. That was the that was the one person they could not tolerate. The Dems were willing to have a second term of Trump rather than to risk a President Bernie Sanders. And, you know, I don't know. I, I can't second guess him. He's over 80. He's I mean, I've been very disappointed in his just what seems to be just dogged loyalty to Biden and Democratic Party leadership that is getting his followers nothing. Yeah, but, there, you know, I don't he, know. He is up for re-election, I think, in 2024. So that that may change a lot well, of the but like Bernie Sanders. And, you know, good on Bernie Sanders about that. He has had debates every every single one of his real every single one of his elections, even though he's leading his opponents by 30, 40 points. He has public debates with his opponents in the senatorial race, which he doesn't need to have. Uh, you know, I don't think he's worried about re-election in Vermont. I, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any big movement. He's, I think there's a uh, uh, a governor that was, to, uh, or no, there was the um, a House of Representative person who was a Bernie Sanders ally that was just elected. So, so I don't know what he thinks he can do with the remnants of his movement. I don't think there's going to be the same. If he decides to run in 24, he has not ruled that out. I don't know where the energy is going to come from. Not, I think he has the energy. The problem is the, the bench. The left doesn't have a bench to protect. I'm not going to be out there. I'm not going to be freezing my ass out in zero degree weather in Iowa. You know, for him in 2024 at this point, because I don't when, believe I'm talking about when he gets elected president. We don't have, the left yeah. does not have a bench to protect well? Bernie Sanders. You don't you need those 20 people from the Freedom Caucus who are willing to shut the mm -hmm. government down. Bernie doesn't have 20 ideologues. 20 doctrinaires who are willing to, to let the whole thing stop. And until we get that, until we see that in the House, there's no point in electing uh, somebody like Bernie because he'll be destroyed. Well, you know, you do have, unfortunately, we have given our presidents way, presidents way too much power. 
and it's usually in the wrong hands. But Bernie could be like Biden could have been day one marijuana off the schedule one list. Day one could have like restored uh, the rights of, of, to strike, you know, for people, for uh, workers whose businesses get government contracts on day one. He could have done a lot of things. They're yeah. not going to do it. Yeah. I'm reminded we, we have to move on to Ukraine and uh, oh dear. Syria, uh, some lighter topics than this. <laughs> I'm reminded of two great people. Uh, Michael Brooks used to say, you don't ask, you take it. You don't ask for Medicare for all, you take it. Or if you're against the war in Iraq, you don't ask if you're Nancy Pelosi, you don't ask the president to pull out. You take away the funding. And Ralph Nader always says it just takes one percent. If you want Medicare for all, all it takes is one percent of this country to want it more than everybody else. I think to me, it's always been for me, Medicare for all. If we can't come together on Medicare for all, I'm watching a friend go through it right now with the health insurance companies. If we can't come together on Medicare for all, if the if the American people can't unite against the health insurance companies and find one percent of this country, one percent of the Senate, one percent of the House of Representatives willing to shut the whole thing down unless you put these health insurance companies out of business and give us single payer. I don't see how we can get anything else done. And 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 if the, the lesson from those 20 who are holding up the speakership, we need find me 20, get me 20 in the House, 20 in the Senate who are willing to shut it all down for Medicare for all. Otherwise, we're lost. Let's talk about speaking of Ukraine. Give us uh, Professor Ann Lee writes a, a nightly update on Ukraine. There was talk of a, uh, a Christmas truce. Uh, Putin uh, has suggested a Christmas truce and uh, Biden shot back immediately by saying, well, you know, you didn't uh, ask for a truce during the a conventional Christian Christmas and the New Year's, and now you want one for the Orthodox New Year. And it's just, you know, so bizarre and arbitrary, and it's obviously meant to uh, appeal for domestic consumption or whatever it is that he's, he's reasonable or whatever, and it's all just simply disinformation. Uh, the fact is it hasn't been broadly uh, broadly reported, and it's obviously part of a large disinformation campaign. Coming it's, out of uh, Coming out of Russia. Yes, coming out of Russia. Um, and, and he needs to counter the, the news that more military assistance is going to Ukraine. Um, the French are donating uh, much more uh, uh, material. Uh, the, the people on, on, the, uh, on social media are arguing whether a tank has six wheels or not. So it's just absurd out there from a disinformation point of view. But... Uh, uh, other than that, uh, there's uh, another Patriot uh, missile batteries coming. Uh, 
uh, certain types of in- infantry uh, fighting vehicles, uh, the Martyr from Germany and the Bradley, uh, talk about a uh, <laughs> a boondoggle uh, <laughs> a piece of uh, military <laughs> procurement is going to, uh, th- but we have a lot of them. And we're also phasing them out so they can all go to Ukraine in that sense, um, all 6,000. Um, but it, that's not probably going to happen. Only 50 are going right now. And these may seem like small numbers, but uh, at some moment, there's going to be a counteroffensive. It's probably going to be in March. And in parallel, there are sort of peace overtures, very strange peace overtures, but they are actually occurring. Um, um Zelensky is going to talk to the EU in a couple of weeks. And after that, there is supposed to be a peace summit in New York um, uh, under the auspices of the UN. So we'll see whether anything moves within that particular context. So there's a lot of moving parts going on. And of course, people are still getting killed. There's a major missile strike um, a couple of days ago that... um, uh, wiped out uh, somewhere around, and this is the the U.S. military says somewhere between 200 and 500 troops, Russian troops were killed. And Russia uh, mainly, right? Go ahead. They were reservists, and uh, uh, the front end on the disinformation is that they were using their cell phones, and that's how they got targeted. That's not true. They, it was always targeted. the The reason why it was bad was because they put all of their all of these troops. Uh, this is in an area next to Donetsk and uh, put them in an, an area right next to an ammo depot. So once they got hit, uh, everybody died pretty much. So that's kind of where we are. So major thing by the uh, defense ministry on Ukraine talking about how they want to take back Crimea. So that's actually sort of more interesting now to see whether this is going to build um, particularly since I think there's going to be a major counteroffensive at some moment that is uh, directly proportional or correlated with whether whether the ground's going to be solid, which is just like uh, like we're coming up to an anniversary for the beginning of the war. It's going to be around the same time. We're probably going to have another major um, engagement. That's kind of where we are now, and every day it's. People are, you know, it's a lot of people are dying and both sides don't want to admit how many people are dying. And 13,000 kids are uh, Ukrainian kids are in Russian hands. And this is just how sad it's gotten. And what are they doing with them? Oh, well, they're changing their names. They're getting them uh, readopted. Russian families are taking them. It, it, it's, uh, it's going to be a nightmare for the UN and a variety of other folks who want to try and track track them down. There are a variety of NGOs trying to keep track of all these things because it's just it just keeps happening. Is this a part of Putin ethnically cleansing the Donbass region? Is that why you grab the kids? Well, that's part of it, but it's actually a general policy. You know, it's a general procedure looking at the the longer history of how Russia repopulated or depopulated areas uh, that were extensions of Russia or the, you know, it, the the extended uh, uh, Soviet republics. Uh, and this goes back, of course, to some very dark times. Uh, I've, heard, pre- I've, heard, I, I've heard a lot of different types of war crimes. I've never heard of kidnapping as a war crime before. This seems well, they're, 
the current currently it's being framed as a genocide in that context. Well, I think the politics around um, children um, go back a long, long way because that's how you reshape the population and its identity. So the, all these stories about, um, you know, indigenous school children um, mm-hmm. in these residential schools, I mean, that's kidnapping. They were taken from their families. The families didn't want them to go to these uh, schools. They were taken. Their religion was changed. They were given you know, Christian names and um, uh, forbidden from speaking any of their indigenous languages and um, basically prepared to be a servant class for, you know, uh, white Christian uh, settler, you know, colonial families, you know, their servants and craftspeople and a kind of laboring underclass. I mean, this has a long history. We see the same thing happening with certain kinds of Catholic schools established in um, you know, conquered territories in the late medieval period um, in Muslim areas of Spain. And, you know, the forcibly converted Muslim populations, their children were sent to special schools to reshape, you know, their identity. And um, so I think the politics around identity and because Ukraine is such a divided society, part of it results from as uh you know, uh, and as mentioning the post-Soviet period ended up meaning that Russians who staffed a lot of administrative, um, you know, bureaus and things like that, populations shifted and were moved around within the Soviet Union into some of these other Soviet socialist republics. But the Russian-speaking affiliations and the close connection culturally, ethnically, linguistically in the region uh, with Russia has been there for, you know, a very long period of time. And, um, you know, there are religious, uh, some somewhat religious divisions. There's the Ukrainian Orthodox Church as distinguished, you know, from the Russian Orthodox Church. So they will, you know, basically be affiliates of the Orthodox approach, um, you know, to liturgy and doctrine, but they have different, you know, kind of hierarchies and structures, different patriarchs in order to maintain some sense of independence and change their identity. Um, So, you know, this is a very divided society. It's going to be messy, you know, to have, which is why the 2014 you know, post-Maidan government made a huge mistake in outlawing, you know, in schools and in government bureaus in order to get your social services and, you know, pay your municipal taxes and all that. Outlawing Russian in those eastern regions where the majority of people actually spoke Russian is a devastating and aggressive and hostile act that precipitated the start of this war, which has been going on for eight years, but was contained within the eastern Donbass region and now has you know, blown up. Just a little correction, though. I, I mean, I have a difference of opinion about the uh, Christmas truce. You know, we're speaking of, uh, you know, something that comes from the 1914, you know, unofficial um, c- ceasefire and celebration along the Western Front in World War uh, One between Germans and English and French uh, troops in the trenches and so on. You know, perhaps this is a little bit of a callback to that or an attempt at doing so. But the vast majority of Ukrainians also celebrate Christmas according to the Orthodox calendar, the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian. There are more now in the last 10 years because of this Europeanization and orientation 
that do celebrate Christmas on the 25th. But, you know, the vast majority for this is genuinely a day that would be celebrated. You know, the sixth is Christmas Eve, seventh is Christmas Day, according to the uh, Ukrainian Orthodox uh, community as well. So. It may still be a cynical move. It may be one, you know, and it was rejected right away. Um, but it isn't um, like it's just a day for the Russians to celebrate. It's also oh, no, the no. Ukrainian, Ukrainian Ab- celebration. Absolutely. And there are divisions, of course. Uh, uh, the current disinform- disinformation is is to distinguish between the Ukrainian Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox Church. And in fact, to persecute uh, a variety of whichever church you're affiliated with. And and that's become problematic in terms of the uh, changes in um, uh, some of the the public uh, speech laws in um, in Ukraine. Right. I I have to say that uh, um, I would be in favor of any truce, any time to stop the killing in order to uh, try to reach some sort of an agreement. I would be in favor of that no matter when you're celebrating, celebrating Christmas, um, you know, and, you know, as Professor Anley has continually said that there's a lot of disinformation on both sides. Uh, I, you know, I don't doubt that uh, there are a lot of uh, Ukrainian children in Russia. Um, so in order to stop these kind of atrocities, uh, the best thing to do is to end this war before any more of them can happen. So that's really where our effort should be, I would think. Right. Well, in our uh, limited time, let's turn to diplomacy that Russia is conducting in Syria. Well, uh, exactly. I mean, speaking of uh, possible truces, negotiations to end uh, military conflict that has plunged, uh, you know, at least one country uh, into chaos and has really burdened uh, neighboring countries uh, with uh, innumerable refugees. I mean, we can count them maybe around seven million total uh, is, of course, the forgotten Syria conflict, which has been off the uh you know, front page news for a while, but um, has been simmering along in a kind of unhappy stalemate where it's clear that the Syrian government um, of uh, Bashar al-Assad is not going to be toppled. I mean, it doesn't control uh, all of its former territory, but it clearly, you know, does some of the major urban populations and is not going to be toppled. And to that end, you've seen that the United Arab Emirates, for example, that really was supporting the Syrian opposition uh, is now moving to diplomatic relations as well. So there's a realignment starting to take place in the region as a whole um, that is having consequences now for the possibility of a deal to end the Syrian conflict. And the biggest component of this is, for the first time, Turkey having diplomatic engagement with the Assad government that started with, you know, intelligence service, you know, transferring information. This has been going on, you know, at moments of cooperation uh, before, uh, but now with the defense ministers meeting. So the Turkey's defense minister met the Syrian defense minister on December 28th. It was billed as a very surprise meeting because I think they didn't do a lot of announcing it, but they met 
under the auspices of uh, Russian um, negotiations and diplomatic kind of brokering. And they met in Moscow um, as a kind of trilateral way of 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 um, engaging in high level talks. Um, and uh, Erdogan today mentioned, uh, I believe it was today, just a few hours ago, mentioned that there might be the possibility of you know, him meeting Assad uh, as well, you know, once, you know, the foreign ministers meet and so on. Now, what's happening here, it seems to me, is part of this realignment that's taking place in the region. Uh, Saudis met with uh, Xi Jinping. Okay, they did not go along with Biden's call for increased oil production. We've been talking about this, that they, you know, started acting a little bit more independently. Um, And what's happening is and I I watched a really interesting interview with Ibrahim Kalen on Al Jazeera from last month. And Ibrahim Kalen is Turkey Erdogan's kind of presidential advisor and spokesperson. And he's a very articulate figure whose English is good. So he's able to communicate Turkish positions well to a Western audience on Al Jazeera in English. And, um, you know, he seemed to be alluding to the fact that Turkey is having overtures now to reconcile with with Egypt. You know, they they were strong allies. Erdogan came out very strongly for the Morsi Muslim Brotherhood government and was unwilling to accept really uh, the coup uh, that toppled the first democratically elected government in Egypt's history. Um, uh, But now they're willing to talk with them. Uh, And there's overtures to um, UAE and Saudis that they've had very troubled relationships in the last decade or so because uh, Turkey has been more in alignment with Qatar and this kind of Muslim Brotherhood kind of orientation in the region. Um, And um, I think Turkey senses that People are a little unhappy with the U.S.'s interventions, interference and demands that everybody has to be either with them or against them um, and that they are trying to uh, capitalize on this by, um, you know, actually also uh, figuring out a, a position in Syria that will be beneficial to them. They've been threatening uh, a kind of invasion, you might say, in um, northern Syria to control a kind of 30 kilometer zone that they want uh, to be, you know, free of what they call these terrorist groups, i.e. Kurdish militias and uh, the YPG militias. Um, and also as a zone in which they might repatriate and resettle some of the four million refugees, Syrian refugees um, in this kind of zone as a kind of Turkish loyal buffer sort of zone. And the reason why that is happening is because, uh, you know, Turkey is not a wealthy country, sort of a middle power. It's suffering 90 percent you know, inflation rate right now. And when Trump kind of put on the, you know, in a fit of peak, uh, you know, put on, uh, um, you know, some sanctions on Turkey on its currency, like, you know, it just got devalued so quickly. It was a disaster. So what's happening is, is that a lot of this economic, you know, anxiety and instability in Turkey is manifesting in anti-Syrian refugee sentiment, you know, like, why have we taken on four million? And think about it, you know, uh, four million refugees. That's a lot. You know, 
Turkey has a population, I don't know, 70 million. That's a huge percentage to take on as refugees. Um, but it's, it is manifesting in opposition policies that say, hey, we should have a deal with Syria and we should have some of these Syrian refugees return to their homes. And, you know, Erdogan was so um, precipitous in taking the side of like, you know, the Syrian opposition and in the U.S. policy to support radical you know, jihadist militias to try and topple the government, um, the Assad government, that, you know, it looked like there might never be any kind of rapprochement. He called, you know, Assad a terrorist. He, he, you know, he was remarkably intemperate, you know, like six, seven, eight years ago. So the fact that he's saying that there might be a possibility of meeting you know, I mean, I think it's to Turkey's interest that they're trying to realign their policy around a regional security, regional cooperation, isolate and marginalize the U.S., which is one of the big effects that would happen here. And they see that Iran is suffering major protests and instability. Their attention is, you know, kind of on these internal questions. Russia is bogged down here in Ukraine. Two of the major patrons and allies of the Syrian government are a bit distracted. And this is one of the reasons why Russia itself has put pressure on Syria to actually go to these meetings because Syria had been maintaining a position that they will not begin dialogue and discussion until Turkey withdraws all of its troops from their territory. That's a precondition. They've managed to go around this precondition. And I think the goal here seems to be to stop Turkey's impending intervention in the north and find a way in which they could broker a more sustainable peace that suits you know, both parties. And, you know, the U.S. has condemned this. I mean, the U.S. is, of course, supporting Kurdish militias and also uh, says that it's there fighting ISIS. You know, I mean, is it really? I mean, yeah. What's the evidence that they're fighting ISIS? In Syria, did did we go to the U.N. to, like, uh, get the world to agree to this? I mean, it seems like we're it's we're in a very weird situation up there we seem to be we the u.s government and and the military industrial complex seems to be allied now only with kurdish rebels in an area that happens to have syrian oil i'm sure that isn't a complete coincidence but and wheat yes as well so what do you think if this alliance goes through what is the um what is the prospect for the U.S. maintaining its military presence inside of Syria? Much, much lower. I mean, I think, yeah. uh, you know, if if Turkey and and uh, Syria manage to patch things up and come to some modus vivendi here, I think that spells pretty much the end for a viable U.S. military presence. Um, you know, it just takes two of the key combatants out of the equation aligning together to focus on you know removing u.s influence and i think ibrahim kalin i think that's what he was uh, he was very vague but he said one thing at one moment when he was talking about all of these new realities and new conditions in the region that was that was encouraging uh opportunities to actually 
have productive relations with Egypt, with UAE, with Saudis. I mean, he said something very brief. He mentioned that, you know, that some of these uh, countries have expressed dissatisfaction with U.S. policy in the region. And so, you know, are kind of looking for other alternatives. And so I think what Turkey is interested in doing, it seems here, or Turkey, we should say, the State Department has just today uh, announced, U.S. State Department, that it will start using the uh, Turkey rather than Turkey, uh, since there's been an official name change. So, where, happened so how do we pronounce it now? What is it? Uh, Turkey. 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 Yeah, Turkey. Yeah. And there's an umlaut over the U, but nobody expects Americans to actually be able to, you know, say the umlaut, you know. So it's just if you just say Turkey, now you're probably good. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the point point there is, is that, um, you know, Turkey is is uh, uh, playing a kind of interesting diplomatic game here, um, you know, where they're part of NATO, but that comes with their conditions and pursuit of their interests. They're willing to talk with the Russians and help broker diplomatic uh, arrangements. But ultimately, what they most want, it seems, is, uh, you know, to establish some, you know, good working relations in the region and end some of the divisions that have been fomented principally by U.S., kind of intervention and creating these blocks. They're trying to overcome some of these blocks, not that they will resolve and everybody will be allies, but, you know, to try and find local regional solutions without the need to call upon the U.S. to broker them. And in some cases, you know, sometimes they will look for China or Russia or other parties that they have good relations with and lots of trade and economic relations with to be those brokers and not necessarily just have the U.S. be the broker for regional policy. John Bolton doesn't like this at all. He hates it. Yeah, he, 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 he is very upset. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is getting worse, though. I mean, in the sense that uh, the new Israeli government is is swinging to the right. And so that's going to cause all kinds of other related issues uh, in terms of regional security, uh, as well as the 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 kind of joint relations between Russia and Iran relative to not only military supplies, but the fact that Russia is trading uh, advanced jets for, you know, uh, drones. It's just it it's not getting any better in that context. Well, thank you all for uh, it's an honor. Uh, and not to get maudlin, but to have taken a little break and be coming back and seeing this with fresh eyes, it's uh, stunning. So thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings, particle physicist, Parks Commissioner Aurora, Illinois. Follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl. Professor Ann Lee, read her every day over at the Daily Co's. Her handle is... Annie Lee, thank you for that. Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. He also is the host of the Mudgeless podcast, as well as Guerrilla History. Please tell us who your guests are. Well, on Guerrilla History, we recently had a year-end live stream Q&A with uh, listeners, and it was a whole load of fun because it was a collaboration with 
Revolutionary Left Radio and Red Menace podcast. So we got all four hosts together. Brett is O'Shea as part of all all three of them. Uh, but it was great. It was the first time I'd had a, a conversation with Allison, who is um, one of the co-hosts for Red Menace. It was terrific. Uh, we got asked a lot of questions that, of course, nobody could really answer, but we did our best. And we have um, Gerald Horn coming up really wow. soon. I think maybe January 6th, uh, wow. we may uh, have uh, the episode on Not Messing with Texas, about his book about the counter-revolution of 1836 and uh, Texas um, and its place in the history of uh, American fascism and white supremacy. So I think it'll be really interesting. Wow. Wow. Professor Jonathan Bick will be teaching Star Trek at office hours on Saturday. Before I I just remembered, Professor Adnan Hussein's class on the Crusades comes back on Saturday at 9.30, correct? 9.30 a.m. Eastern, yes. And uh, we have a special guest, uh, Margaret Papano. Um, my oh. partner is going to come and talk to us about crusading and medieval literature. And we can think a little bit about our own contemporary, uh, you know, films and TV uh, in the era of the global war on terror, uh, you know, uh, by analogy, but we'll get a sense of the medieval literature um, and crusading. There, there was something, uh, I don't want to embarrass you, but I think it was at office hours, I think it was Christmas Eve, your partner put her head next to yours, and I thought it was a still photo. And it we was just enjoying the discussion of office it was, hours. It was, it was very sweet the, the, watching the two of you. Uh, it, it was very nice. Uh, Professor Jonathan Bick will be teaching Star Trek Saturday afternoon on office hours. You will be teaching the Twilight Zone Friday night at office hours, and you will be screening. This is very exciting. The Trials of Henry Kissinger, a documentary. Tell us about that. Uh, and then we'll say goodnight to everybody. Yeah. So it's a very uh, interesting uh, documentary uh, where Christopher Hitchens essentially um, goes through a number of episodes in history where Henry Kissinger was uh, central to the uh, atrocities that were being committed uh, or crimes that were being committed uh, with the assistance of the U.S. government. Um, yeah, so I, I strongly recommend it. A very uh, interesting. And Christopher Hitchens is in the film and he is um, entertaining as always. Right. Is Noam Chomsky in it as well? I don't think so. That I, It's been a while since I've seen it, but uh, it's a great movie. So. Yeah, very good. Uh, speaking of Christmas truces, uh, he was responsible for the Christmas bombings of Hanoi. So that uh, anyway, thank you all. Joe in Norway, who does the scheduling for office hours. Uh, we're doing yes. I, I just have to plug Rahima.org because I am starving watching you. It was riveting. Uh, and not be I managed to knock out 500 grams of pasta. 
almost broke a sweat. Yeah. So what did you make there? So I made a combination of, of white flour and semolina, durum semolina, cavatelli with uh, a little bit of olive oil, salt, and warm water. You let it sit, you knead it for a bit and let it sit for 10 minutes and then roll it out into snakes, cut them into small pieces and then roll them on gnocchi board or a back of a fork or just your thumb on the table. Cook them for about five, six minutes. I also made a uh, pesto with cashew, cilantro, and tomato. Now, with the cashews, you used a mortar and pestle on the cashews? That... Yeah, I chopped them up a little bit first and then put them in the mortar and pestle. And that makes kind yeah, of a nice and creamy. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. Instead of cheese, you use cashews. Interesting. So get a mortar and pestle, crush the cashews. Okay. You need to put out a cookbook. Basil or cilantro, what have you. When are you going to put out an olive oil? When are you going to do a cookbook? Uh, we're, we're collecting every every show I do. It's going to be archived. So we'll be collecting all those together. Unbelievable. <laughs> Another success story from Office Hours. Go to my website, hit Office Hours, or sign up for my newsletter. And it includes the link to Office Hours. Meet better people. I promise you, you will meet better people at Office Hours. Give to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. We create a lot of refugees throughout the world here in the United States, and we don't take them in. Brahima.org is a food pantry in the San Francisco Bay Area for refugees, and it provides the kind of food that uh, keeps them alive. Whole foods, beans, rice with fiber and yogurt. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in. Right.